What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch backpack for your fire career or your hunting game or any of other of those load-bearing necessary adventures, well, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, you heard me. <laughs> Anyways, they, aside, well, aside from making arguably the most comfortable, the most durable, and the most badass wild and fire packs in the game, they make a ton of other load-bearing essentials. And now, they also have some new accessories out there. You should swing over there if you're looking for a new radio uh, holder for your pack. Yeah, because no one likes uh, smacking their elbow, their funny bone on their radio. But they made the TalkBox 5000, and it's a pretty cool little piece of equipment, and it's affordable. So, clips on to, well, basically wherever the hell you want to put it on your Mystery Ranch fire gear. So, go check it out. It's pretty neat. And while you're at it, you might as well go uh, check out the Big Ernie pack as well. Now, I actually uh, just happened to be rocking one of those for my day job with BurnBot and uh, rock that thing while I'm doing prescribed fire. And it's actually really comfortable and it kicks ass and it brings me back to a little bit of hell attack days because it is most definitely designed for air operations like helic attack or repelling or smoke jumping. It's pretty badass. Go check those out too. And while you're at it on the website, you might as well go check out the Mystery Ranch Backbone series. Yeah whole uh, Mystery Ranch crew got together and because they actually give a shit about the uh, boots on the ground, they decided to make uh, it worthwhile for you to go over there and check out some of their stories and also submit your own story for a $1,000 scholarship called the Mystery Ranch Backbone Series Scholarship. So if you like what you see and you think you can add to the storytelling game, well, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone series and submit your story because there is a $1,000 scholarship up for grabs for your professional development. Once again, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be caffeinated by none other than our premier coffee sponsor, and that's going to be Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Yeah, so if you're looking for some good coffee or some of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, or a whole slew of Wildland Firefighter-themed apparel, look no further than Hotshot Brewing. You can go over there and check it out and get all your tools of the trade and help support a good cause at the same time. Go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out all of the tools of the trade to get your morning to start off right and all of the apparel and some kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. Go check them out. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is, well, they're not sponsored by, they're not brought to you by, but it is one of those close relationships I have with Bethany over there at the American Wildfire Experience. And uh, yeah, I just want to show her some love for as long as I possibly can because I believe in her cause and I believe in her mission and she's got some rad stuff going on. And if you don't know what the American Wildfire Experience is, well, they house the Smoky Generation. And I know for a fact, a lot of people out there have seen that rolling around. It's pretty freaking awesome. What it is, is basically a digital storytelling platform uh, telling the story of wildland fire. There's quite literally, there's there has to be like over 250 of these stories out there now, but it's preserving the legacy of the uh, folks in the field and the story of wildland fire. And some of these stories even date back to the 1940s. It's pretty freaking bitching. So if you want a little history lesson, or if you want to sign up for the Smoky Generation grant program, if you got a compelling story and you're telling the story of wildland fire through the lens of a camera, a video camera or a still camera, 
through a blog, through some animations. There was this one dude out there who made uh, We Move Mountains with Spoons, and it's freaking kick-ass, and they're a Smoky Generation grant recipient. Yeah, sky's the limit. Tell the story. It's freaking awesome. Anyways, if you want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org, and you can check it all out. Once again, www.wildfireexperience.org. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. going on everybody hope everybody's doing well hope everybody is uh salty i hope i really do hope that everybody's salty because our federal government has really let us down and now i don't have to answer to fucking anybody on capitol hill right now and i'm gonna keep keep sitting here and and keep doing my thing and i'm gonna keep fighting the good fight for those boots on the ground so if i had it my way if i had a magic wand to fix this fucking problem i would but I would add something on top of that for every day that the government shuts down or every stupid fucking reason that a good bill doesn't pass because someone wants to stand on their fucking soapbox and just like put their back against the wall. I'd find them. I'd find all those assholes on Capitol Hill, $100,000 a day just to prove a point. But I digress. I'll get off my soapbox now. I hope everybody's doing well, genuinely. And I know that we got some hard times ahead. But like I said, I'm going to keep fighting. I hope that everybody else does because Grassroots and Niffy are not letting down. Anyways, today we are going to talk about, we're going to talk all about the movie Hotshot. Yeah. We're going to talk about this extraordinary documentary. Uh, I am a huge fan of it. And I had the uh, luxury of getting early access to this film when it first came out. And uh, well, actually before it even came out. And I got to see the evolution of the process of what you're going to see in its final form on Amazon and all the other streaming services that it's going to be released on. Yeah, it's freaking awesome. I think it's a great story. It follows around a hotshot crew, a hotshot in particular. And we all know who that is. Justine, shout out to you. And uh, yeah, basically documents a day in the life and some of the most destructive wildfires in California. Now, this movie took six years to create. And Gabe, the cinematographer, director, the <laughs> the, the everything. I mean, he had some help producing it, but he's done. He's he shot, edited it. He produced it. He's doing all the distribution. He, yeah, the marketing, everything. Dude's rolling solo. He's going hard. He's going real hard in the paint. And I appreciate it. So you get an opportunity to check this movie out. Definitely go check it out. It's at www.hotshotmovie.com. But we are going to talk all about the process and talk about all the stuff that goes into the making of this movie. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Mr. Gabriel Mann. Welcome to the Anchor Point. You're so Hollywood. I love it. I'm going to send you a slate. I'm going to send you a real slate with the clapper and everything. Oh, there it is. Right there. Look at that. Dude. 
Bang. Oh, yeah. Now there we official. go. Now it's official. <laughs> <laughs> super yeah. official you better bring it out for mr hollywood dude <laughs> gotta bring out my uh my ten dollar amazon special slate for this uh historic event that we're recording today <laughs> mm-hmm. hey dude i'm telling you just because you spend more money doesn't mean that it's better like I, true it's all dude all my colleagues make fun of me on set because i have the most ghetto stuff like all my gear is so <laughs> ghetto because i'm so cheap but the, but the thing is, it's like, dude, the sensor on the camera matters. Everything else, totally flexible. Yeah. Everything else. And so I don't, I don't bother like trying to impress anybody. Like it's not going to work anyway. It's so like, I'm telling you, dude, it's like those gear dorks that are super pretentious about their gear. Oh yeah. Oh God. Just like, come on, man. It's a waste, dude. Fly fishermen are the worst. I'm going to say it right now. Cause I'm one of them. Oh really? Oh yeah. Fly. Do you want to talk about the most pretentious sons of bitches out there? Oh man, yeah. look at my sage rod and my this and that and the other, my Patagonia waders. I'm like, get, get fucked. I'm like, got the Walmart special and like some echo rod. I'm just like, huh, who's catching fish, motherfucker? Yeah, I know, dude. At the end of the day, just, just put a fly and a hook at the end of some string, man. Pretty much. I, I will say though, I, I went fly fishing for the first time in my life just uh, a month back because my buddy, like one of my really good buddies out here in Tennessee, big time fly fisherman. Yeah. And so we went into the Smokies. We went over into uh, North Carolina to Cherokee, the Indian reservation mm-hmm. and just went out in the river and he taught me how to cast and I caught two fish before he caught one. Nice dude. <laughs> it's like, Beginner's luck, dude. Yeah. The dork who has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> of course. Sloppy cats and getting like tangled and like caught oh, up and stuff. So it was oh. so bad. Like they had to trip, they had to trim lures like three times. Cause it was just like getting caught in the water. <laughs> I'm not cut out for That's it. That's part of the fun though. So. Yeah. Well, anyways, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, we've got the legendary document, documentarian, documentarian. Is that even like a word? Like Dude, just don't documentary. Call me a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Documentary oh, yeah. filmmaker, Gabriel yeah. Mann. What's going on? Just man? a bro with a camera. <laughs> hey, that works. So, yeah. So, what's going on, man? <sighs> just living the dream out in Tennessee. You know, I, I feel like I got my fill in California and I lived as California life as I could. You know, yeah. I grew up by the beach, went to wildfires for a decade. I'm like, all right, I got my fill. Now I'm out in Tennessee raising chickens and probably going to start a family soon. So Hell yeah, it's a different man. life. Congratulations. Must be going well. And then the whole organic gardening, because we banter back and forth about like how to get rid of fucking squash bugs. And apparently chickens are the answer. Dude, I'm telling you, ever since ever since we, you know, we've got seven chickens now, just seven chickens, all of a sudden, all the insects in the backyard are gone. No ticks, no squash bugs, no like it's crazy how much like people told me that that would happen. I thought, ah, it's bullshit. It's just some chickens, but no, no, they cleared it out. It's incredible. Hmm. Might have to get invested in some chickens, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> and bees, dude, bees. Though. I need bees, dude. I need a, I need yeah. a beehive for sure. So Watch, once once you start going down that rabbit hole, you're gonna have a full on farm. We're getting a donkey next month. <laughs> I don't know why, but we're gonna have a donkey. Reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reasons. You're gonna have an alpaca next. Uh, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe an elephant. Who knows? Yeah. Whatever floats your boat, man. Yeah. So tell us about yourself. Well, uh, look, like I said, I'm just a bro with a camera. Um, and I, you know, I was an athlete in college. I kind of got into film in my own sort of weird independent way because I'm very antisocial. 
and I'm not a good ladder climber. And so I never had any prospects in Hollywood. And so, you know, I, I just do commercials and, and some documentaries and, and music festival stuff. And um, I think it was in 2013, 2014, I met a girl, Justine, who, who you know, you've interviewed, mm-hmm. um, who's a wildland firefighter. And, you know, we were together for eight years. And I remember she never wanted to talk about her job because it's, it was so difficult. So, I mean, like we had our first date and then she went onto a fire for two weeks out in the middle of nowhere on the rim fire. That's a hell of an introduction and, to a uh, hot shot life. Yeah. Bye-bye. No, no cell phone service for two weeks. <laughs> and so, and that just became emblematic for what our entire relationship was. Yeah. But you know, the job is so difficult as you well know, she never wanted to talk about it ever. So I was one of these guys that we make fun of who, you know, like, Oh, there's some smoke in the air. Green trucks go by, the red trucks go by. Those are the ones we notice. And then three weeks later, there's no more smoke. And we never know what happens. I was that guy, even while dating a firefighter, because she never wanted to talk about it. And then one day in 2016, just about like 100 meters from our house, the sand fire in on the Angeles broke out. It was like basically in our backyard. And this fire became a ripper. And it took out a bunch of homes. Thing was absolutely cranking. And that was the first time I ever had a front row seat to what you guys do. And I remember seeing her crew buggies roll by and the jets flying overhead and helicopters. And it was like, yeah, I mean, it's the closest thing to war that you will ever see in this country. And I remember just, I I grabbed my camera, sprinted up the hill. I was just like in basketball shorts, (laughs) like it was was 108 degrees, you know, typical summer day in Santa Clarita. But I remember the visuals that I got were so unbelievable. It was like filming Godzilla and it's just free production value. Yeah. Larger than life almost. And I, I remember thinking like, wait, this is what you do. This, this is what you do. For a living, I was blown away, and so I immediately caught the fire bug. And I was like, I need to figure out how to film this. I have to. And so, you know, I had initially tried to make inroads with the feds to see if I could, you know, get permission to go and film. Um, and that wasn't an option. They kind of just told me to go screw myself. I'm about to say that's a pretty tall order to fill right there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, but um, in California, if you have a press badge. And it doesn't matter how silly the press badge is, you, you have full unfettered access to wildfire zones. So you mean There's to tell me that you could have like, you can go to like Chuck E. Cheese and get like a press pass, like the Chuck yeah. E. Cheese, you can print it at home and just like go document. Yes. It's, huh. And that's, that's the thing. Look, there's, there's a lot of fire pornographers and you know journalists who will probably get mad at me for saying this. And you'll see them on Twitter complaining when, you know, sheriff's deputies will block them from getting access to any given fire as if they're the most important thing. But there is this law in California that facilitates access. And there's there's basically just two rules. You're responsible for your own safety. Yeah. So if you get in trouble, like we ain't going to help you and don't get in the way of operations. So as long as you adhere to those two principles, there are no rules. So any journalist, anyone with a press pass, if you order it online, doesn't matter. You just go anywhere you want hmm. on a fire. It's not like you so, have to be registered with the Associated Press or anything. Oh, not at all. Huh. There's, there's like literally, there's literally <laughs> nothing that's pretty that interesting. Anyway. I know, it, dude. It's it's crazy. 
I think it's absolutely nuts. Um, and what you get is you'll get dudes out there. I've seen it. I'll, dude, I'll send you a picture of this one dude who was out there in his Mercedes coupe on the lake fire wearing shorts, sandals, and like a, a button up Hawaiian shirt taking pictures. Wait a second. <laughs> like, yeah, it might've been you for all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Except oh, you had a Mercedes. Yeah, but definitely like, not that. I don't make that many paychecks. No, yeah, I know. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a Tacoma, so for sure. Um, it's, it's nuts, but I did it. I exploited it. Because, you know, I, I am a credentialed member of the press. I, you know, I, I, the first assignment I ever got was I went all the way to New York to cover some protests for the Iraq war. And I even got arrested doing that. So I actually, you know, I do have press credentials. Um, and as silly as the law is, it did give me the ability to go wherever I wanted. And nobody could tell me to leave. If anybody did, I would yeah. because I'm, I'm not the priority. And I did take it very seriously. I took all of the same courses that you would have to take to get red carded. Yeah. And I would do a pack test every night as like my cool down. I would do the hotshot hike to try to get in shape. And I put weight on, I would do the weight vest. I took it very seriously and I got all the appropriate PPE, got a fire shelter. And, um, you know, just in, in living with a hotshot, you learn a lot about operations. You get an understanding of how they communicate. I, you know, I had one of the dudes program my radio. So I had their crew tap. So I was able to listen in and have basically all the same intel that, that they're getting. So I was able to use their lookouts as my lookouts and it helped keep me safe and helped me locate them and find where their buggies were when they're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so I would just go anytime there's a fire, I'll just go just disappear yeah, off into so. the woods. Yep. And oh, I would shit. just load up my backpack with a bunch of batteries and a bunch of water and just grab my red and just go and film and see what I could get. And I filmed for six years. Yeah. Six years. Jesus. Every fire season, like basically once hell week was over, I would just wake up in the morning. And I would put on my boots, put on my pants, turn on the scanner and just, you know, edit and wait for the fire for the tone. Wait till to the tone out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being in Santa Clarita, we had a ton of IAs. And like Santa Clarita is like one of the most volatile fire regions in the world. There's five hotshot crews within like a 20 minute radius. Yeah. And like there's, there's, there's no other forest in the country that's got five crews. So there's a very dynamic interface. So I had a lot to choose from, but I wanted to tell the story of hot shots. And as we all know, I mean, dude, yeah, there's some IA action, but at the end of the day, hot shots really come to life on those campaign fires when they're doing the big landscape scale work deep in the cut where nobody else can go. Yeah. You know? And so that to me was the biggest challenge. And so that was like taking the Jeep down some forest roads in the middle of nowhere and just trying to find them. And it's like trying to find ghosts. But if you do it for long enough, eventually you find yourself in the right place at the right time. And you, you capture some of these moments um, that are pretty unbelievable. Like if, if you didn't see it yourself, you, to, to see like a thousand foot fire tornado, it changes the way that your brain operates. It makes you respect mother nature real goddamn quick. Exactly. Yeah. And that right there, I think that is, that's one of the key things that I actually touch on in the opening of, of my movie Yeah, is we have this false sense that we have dominion over nature. And one of the best experiences in being in your world, and it didn't take me long to learn this lesson, is that it's the dead opposite. 
nature is in charge of us and we're just renting. And to, to actually witness the power of this natural phenomenon, because the extreme fire behavior is like the most powerful force on the planet. It's, it's incredible, insane, man. It has a noise and to it. That's another thing, dude. Yeah. This is what I noticed when people would tell me stories about burnovers, you know, or if they ever had to deploy, they never talked about how hot it was. They never talked about what it looked like. They would always talk about what it sounded like. Yeah. Because they would always, that was the one thing people would harp on is like, dude, it was so loud. It was like a freight train. And until you actually go out and experience that for yourself and witness it, it's hard to describe. And I spent a lot of time in post-production trying to recreate some of those sounds. Like, for example, the lake fire in 2020 in, in Lake Hughes uh, near Castaic in Santa Clarita. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most insane IAs I've ever seen, if not the most. There were six column collapses in the first couple hours on that IA because it was just like 100 years of no burn history in that area. So you've got old growth timber mixed in with like 10 foot tall chaparral. Super. So that thing was just, oh, and super steep. Yeah. And so it was these massive uphill runs through heavy timber, heavy brush. It was just nuking off. So that thing iced out. I remember it iced out before I even got to it. I lived 20 minutes away. It was iced already out in iced 20 out. minutes. God damn. Yeah. Talk so about an unstable was, atmosphere, dude. Dude, it was already collapsing before I even got there. And I got caught in two of the collapses. And, you know, it's that moment is in the movie where it's, it just turns into this swirl of embers and fire all around you. You get totally disoriented. But the thing that stood out to me was the noise. It sounded like ghosts. It was so difficult to describe. And that's the thing. If I ever, if I had had to delegate the work to a sound designer, like, hey, do fire sounds, it wouldn't, they wouldn't do it because you don't understand until you get caught in something like that. It does have a weird sound to it and it's very haunting and it sticks with you. I spent like weeks combining the weirdest sounds imaginable to kind of recreate what the real thing actually sounded like. And people, you know, especially like, you know, veteran hotshots who've seen a lot of fire activity, that's the one thing that they comment on a lot. The sound sound, design? Yeah, it sounds like the real thing. And so... I'm hopeful that when people watch it, they realize you, you are getting a real sense of what it is like out there. And it's not a traditional documentary. I don't waste any time looking at somebody describing 200 foot flames or a thousand foot fire tornado or fire raking across the road and burning up the vehicle. We go out and film it because my whole motto is show, don't tell. Yeah. I didn't want to waste any time just listening to people talking about it. I want to go and get it. And that's why it took me so long. I had to keep going out there for six years to just to try to find myself in those situations. And it was really dumb. I almost died a few times. But at the end of the day, it's like, I just don't understand how you can do justice to what the experience is like for what you guys do, unless you actually go and capture those things. Because until you see it yourself, you have no idea. Oh, no. That's another thing, too. I mean, it's a very visceral experience, right? And that's one thing that always, like, even to this day, like, if I hear, like, radio traffic on a TV show that even mimics the sound of a wild, like, a wild end tone out or, like, radio traffic on a wildfire, it gets me, like, looking around, like, (laughs) oh, wait, we're not there. It's it's, it's something that sticks with you, like, forever, right? Those sounds. And I think Mm -hmm. that I don't know between the sounds and the smells. I think those are the two things that are close tied, closest tied to my personal memories 
because mm-hmm. there's nothing like how, how do you describe like the smell of the inside of a, of a shot buggy or what your PG bag smells like, or what it sounds like when you're, you know, half asleep time traveling across the country in the back of a hot shot buggy or embers like firebrands hitting your windshield. And you're like trying to get the fuck out of somewhere. There's a yeah. scary sound. Dude. Oh, dude. It's see this, this just shows how, how in tune we are and, and what a common experience it is when you are actually there, because all those things are like triggering goosebumps. Because oh, like, I remember yeah, dude. Uh, like everything you said. So the look, whenever you write an essay, the first things you say, that is what your whole essay is about. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of fluff in between, but you'll notice the first things that I say in the movie are the most important things. And one of the first things that I talk about is the smell, the smell of old growth cedars burning on the Angeles crest. I remember (laughs) it smells so good. It made me stop. I remember stopping and sitting there. I just, I crawled up this rock tree and I just sat there and watched this entire bowl nuking off. I didn't even bother filming because it just smelled so good to witness that, that power and to smell it. It felt like, you're, it's, it's sort of like cracking open a hundred year old bottle of cognac or something, because these are hundred year old, 200, 300 year old trees giving you this sensory experience. And it is very overwhelming. And then I think about what you said, that sound of embers hitting your windshield. I remember having to back down a forest road because I was in my creeper van and there was no turnaround. <laughs> I, I had tried to drive through what I thought was a flank. And so I thought it was sort of this thin ribbon of fire. I'd be able to just drive past it. I get over this berm and sure enough, it is not a thin ribbon of fire. <laughs> it's like 20 foot Fucking head fire. Yeah, it was, it was head fire. I just didn't realize that it wasn't a flank. And so I had to back out at like 30 miles an hour to try to outrun this thing. And I'm crashing into trees and that sound of like pine trees hitting my, hitting my side mirrors. Like hollow and thud and of like hitting a door panel seeing spot fires in my peripheral vision outside my passenger side, like, dude, it's already spotting around me. And that sound of embers hitting your windshield just adds to that intensity Mm -hmm. of feeling like I got to get the hell out of here. And I don't know if I'm going to make it. It's like that sound sticks with you. Oh yeah. And it's, it's not, it's not like anything. It doesn't quite sound like rain. It doesn't sound like hail. It's something in between. And it's really, really creepy. <laughs> and it's like those things do stick with you. And the moment you hear or smell anything like that, it immediately triggers that experience. And, and I use that, that radio tone a lot as backdrop, as soundtrack, like radio transmissions. I went through the archives of some of the fires that I was you know, showing in the movie and played a lot of the radio traffic because I felt like, dude, that is... The, the ultimate soundtrack for this stuff. And it's the same thing with me. Whenever I hear that, that sort of tinny voice coming over the radio or some of the tones that sound like fire tones, dude, it takes me right back. It's crazy. It gives goosebumps, man. And that's another thing too, is like, yeah, we're talking about this. And I know there's going to be some people that are going to be armchair quarterback in this conversation. Like what the fuck was that guy doing over there? He's just putting himself in danger. I'm like, I, I know plenty of wildland firefighters that have been in the same situation. So to tell me that you haven't been in the same situation as you or me or any of the other operational, like people out there, the boots on the ground, they're full of shit because oh, yeah. oftentimes it's not really a big deal, but it, it kind of feels like a big deal at the time. Right. 
But then again, like you said earlier, mother nature can just turn on you at a second's notice, dude. Mm -hmm. So, well, dude, I I was actually pretty conservative. Surprisingly, I was, I was actually very conservative. Um, because look, I, I, my, my partner at the time, she was a hotshot. I'm accountable to her and to her crew. I never wanted to make them look bad. So it was actually really important that I didn't get in the way that I really understood operations so that I never became a burden. Yeah. I don't want liability. Right. Yeah. And, and that sort of dictated how I behaved, especially when I was around other personnel, I would always try to give indicators that I knew what I was doing. So I deliberately stand in certain places to show that not only do you have to not worry about me, you don't even have to think about whether or not you need to worry about me. I know what I'm doing. I'm never, I'm never going to be in your way. I know what direction you guys are putting your operations. I know what part of the black is safe. And I would be very intentional about that. The, the times when I got into trouble, it wasn't, it didn't happen a lot. It, it was just sort of in remote areas where I was by myself. And it's like, look, I'm taking my own risk. And even in that situation, I had two options. Yeah. I might lose my vehicle with one of those options, but I knew that I, I was going to be fine. Um, and I always sort of gave myself contingencies because I was, I took the lesson seriously. Yeah. Every time I would go somewhere, I'm time tagging every single turnaround, every single safety zone that I identify along the way. I would get out of my vehicle and scout up a windy road on foot before taking my vehicle up there to make sure there's not apparatuses up there. There's not, you know, dozers pushing through. So I was, I was actually very meticulous about, you know, being diligent, being responsible, not getting in the way and showing outwardly, you don't have to worry about me when I'm out here. I'll wear it if I screw something up. And, um, look, man, I went out there for six years. I never died. I never put anybody at hazard. And, and frankly, I missed a ton of really good opportunities because I was conservative. So there were times when hot shots were getting some, but there was no way to get up there except through this narrow P line. And I've got dudes who are, you know, they're getting the anchor point and getting the, the hose leg going down here. If I go up that P line, I might throw some rocks on these guys. Yeah. Now the hot shots were throwing rocks on them, but they're supposed to be there. I don't need to be there. So it's inexcusable if I drop a rock on somebody. There were multiple times that I just, I wouldn't go somewhere just because I didn't want to be that guy that created a problem. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, whenever I did show up, uh, it, and especially in the, the last two years of filming, it got to the point where most people knew who I was because they'd either seen me on fires before or they'd seen my footage online or they knew Justine and they knew that, a, I wasn't going to make them look dumb. I wasn't going to get in their way. I wasn't going to ask stupid questions or film things that I'm not supposed to film. And I'm judicious about what I do. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times the big hesitation around journalists is that they're dumb and they don't understand wildfire and they don't understand the, the technicians in it. They don't have any accountability to any of the firefighters. And so when, whenever firefighters do talk to the press, the press ends up writing some BS story that doesn't in any way accurately reflect their actual feelings about things or operations. Yeah. And so they get so annoyed with it. They just don't want anyone around. But if, if you can just operate respectfully and tell the story honestly, then it's actually a very open and welcoming community. 
And, you know, it's like they, they wanted to take care of me. They, they wanted to give me intel. You know, they, they wanted me to know what their crew tack was so I could listen to their lookout. So, yeah, dude, look, man, um, like I, I've, I've said a million times, it's tricky to know if this is the right project to do because I want to respect hotshot culture. I'm not a hotshot. I never was. Mm-hmm. I was connected to it. I was part of the family. You know, I would cut together their crew videos every year. You know, we would host the crew party at the end of the year and obviously spend a lot of time at the station. And in a lot of ways, when you are the fire wife, when you're the one who's left behind, your job is really difficult. Oh, yeah. Because, I, I mean, like, I got to make sure your car is registered. I got to book your dentist appointment. And, you know, if anything goes wrong with the house, it's entirely my responsibility. And we don't see each other for six months. And then when you get back, or if you just get back from a roll for two weeks, you dump your red bag and it smells like shit and there's dust everywhere. <laughs> and then you come in, like I have my way of doing things around the house. And all of a sudden you're coming in after being with the crew for two weeks, we're going to butt heads and we're going to hate each other. It's, it's look, I had a lot of exposure to the culture. I was a part of the family, but I'm not an operator. And so I always wrestled with, is this my story to tell? But who else is going to tell it? And we're, we're, at a, we're at a point with Wildland Fire where it's, it kind of feels like a very serious inflection point where it's no longer cutesy time with the, the pay issues or you know, with dudes sleeping out of the cars. It's at a point where things are so expensive in life. It, guys just can't make ends meet. They can't raise a family. And I'm seeing dudes who were hotshots their entire adult life, like from the moment they were 18, all they ever wanted to do was hotshotting. They're leaving. They're leaving in their late 30s, early 40s to go shave their head, be a boot rookie at a municipal agency and go clean toilets with their toothbrush. And this is someone who was qualled up, maybe even a soup, you know, like super respected in the wildland community. Look at Hump. Dude. And Hump's such a stud. I love I that dude. And like he set up his crew with this legacy where you have people like Ben now who are just like the perfect transition. Like these dudes are so talented and honorable and they're willing to go and do, or not willing, they just have to. They have to give up a job that they genuinely love and feel compelled to do. So at the end of the day, if we don't tell this story, nobody knows. Because even for the first couple of years of my relationship with a firefighter, I didn't know anything about fire. I was one of those ignorant people. So how can we expect, you know, John Q public to have any sense of the work that you guys do, what the requirements are, what the sacrifices are, what needs everybody has in order to maintain this, how having experienced people keeps people alive because it's not just the quals. Someone who's been a hotshot for 15 years is going to end up going to the same fire twice, right? Because after 12, 13, 14 years, you start seeing you the same enough. shit or yeah. so similar that it is quite almost the same. Yeah. Dolan fire 2020. So this, this dude who I'm talking about is captain. They're, they're in this slot Canyon on the Dolan fire up in Monterey. And the way that it looks with fire coming downhill and it's still a few drainages out. It to any anybody else, it's two hours out. So we got two hours to prep this road and then fire it. But he was on a fire in the same exact canyon 15 years prior. Yeah. He's got that slide already built. Well, he thought 
they thought back then, yeah, we got two hours. But for some reason, with the thermal belt there, things get in alignment. Once fire gets established in this one drainage, it just runs and it just takes off and it's there within 20 minutes. And so he alerted everybody in the division like, hey, we got to go now. We don't have time. And, and he had a hard time convincing everybody. He's like, dude, I've seen this before. Sure enough, things started to run. So, of course, he got his crew. They were burning out of the back of their pickup trucks. Like they were just driving and holding the drip torch out, out of the trucks. And Never, ever have I done that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I mean, uh, they were running next to the, they were next to the pickup truck. Safely, super safely. Yeah. <laughs> um, Gloves on and everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. This was, this was a type two crew, uh, some contract crew. I think it was, <laughs> but, um, there was a burnover and, and a deployment on, on that fire, on that division. Um, and the, 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 the folks who burned, who got burned over and had to deploy, uh, they lost their fire station that they had deployed around, uh, because it caught everybody off guard. Now his qualifications had nothing to do with rescuing his crew and the rest of the division by having that slide deck built in. That's just time on the crew. That's experience, man, that local knowledge. And as you well know, it's the lack of local knowledge that can get you in trouble. That's where a lot of bad incidents happen is when you don't know that in Lake Elsinore at two o'clock, you get this lake effect with down Canyon winds and it's going to run downhill a lot faster than you're used to if you're from Northern California. And so having that length of experience where you are retaining these people you know, like that old school tradition of, of the American corporation that would employ you for 30 years until you retire because you're happy. They take good care of you. You got good benefits. That is going to save people's lives. If that dude, that dude's no longer there. Of course not. So Why would he stick so, around? Can you blame him from leaving? Right. And the thing is that incident happens in 2020. He leaves in 2021. What if that fire happened in 2021? Does this whole crew get burned over? No one would have known. I mean, potentially, yeah, potentially chance it's easy to armchair quarterback it, but right. Oh, of course. And you can do that about anything, but at the very least it would have been a dicey situation and he made it less dicey because he had that foreknowledge. And so we're at a point where obviously if you can't retain these studs and these veterans, because they just, they need to take care of their families, people are going to die. You're going to have less experienced dudes on the fire line. And it's, it's nobody's fault in terms of like, oh, they just aren't skilled enough or they don't have enough quals. Look, it's just the reality. Yeah. So if you care about this community, you care about these people and you care about the job that they do, someone's got to advocate. And in a way that, frankly, the agency is, is not good at doing. They're too risk They're adverse. PR. Their PR game sucks. And I've told that to them. I've told that to their Washington <laughs> level. I've told them that they're at the Washington level. PAO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, Hey, you guys have a problem with PR. <laughs> well, like you said, it, there is uh, a level of pucker factor. Yeah. They're risk averse. They're risk averse. They're controversy averse, but this always ends up biting them in the rear. As you see all the time, if something, you know, adverse happens, I won't call it bad because like my personal philosophy, let's say you lose a a burn. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just go to Hemet's pat or Hemet's peak or whatever it was down in. Yeah. Yeah. Let's use that as an example. What was so the knee jerk reaction there? All burning right. done. Yeah. All done. That's not very smart. No. Or, um, was it Sarah, Sarah Pilato, which they came out recently and identified that that one was an escape burn, but they had kept it very quiet for the longest time because they didn't want to look bad. Well, now you look shady. Yep. 
Now you look like you're covering something up. So this, this sort of tendency to be risk averse or, or like, oh, well, we, we can't say that. We can't show that. Oh, we can't have, we can't watch our hot shots working because, you know, sometimes they don't wear an undershirt or they don't wear their gloves or they're not wearing goggles. It's like sometimes they cuss and they, they snort tobacco because they need to stay up all night. It's like, dude, they're shotgunning Red this, Bulls and bang energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is real life. Yeah. This and is what you need dudes. to do to survive. Right. And these are the dudes doing the work. And, and frankly, what I've found, and even, even some of the, the hotshots who I filmed were, were nervous about what I had captured. That's and part of I, the culture, man. Well, but even beyond that, they're just afraid, oh, this is going to make me look bad. Uh, the no, reprisal thing like too. A human. It makes you look like a human. And you'll be surprised that people aren't going to get offended if you are cussing or making a joke or you're, you're, you know, using a little bit of snuff to stay awake. You're a human being. And this is what we're losing sight of with the whole discussion. Oh, yeah. The human beings who are on the ground doing the physical work that has to get done, that drones and AI cannot do, that this mechanical bureaucracy cannot do. There's a, there's, look, there's utility for some of these tools, but at the end of the day, it's hot shots. Hands on. Dude, they fight fire the same way that my ancestors did 10,000 years ago. You walk into the forest and put fire in the ground. Oh, yeah. And like, as it turns out, that is the solution for everything. So it is a human-based solution. It's a human-caused human problem. And the idea that we would avoid telling the human story and connecting with other humans so the taxpayers can connect the dots and understand why we need to value these people in this way by passing the Tim Hart Act, right? Getting permanent pay increases, giving them the dignity of calling them firefighters before their funeral. That's a big one. You have to tell that story and no one's going to do it. No one's going to do it. So nobody within the hotshot community is going to do it in a way that the mainstream can really grab onto like a movie, because guess what? You're I'm glad you said that too, by the way, because there's plenty of documentaries out there that have been yeah. made internal. They're all great. Um, but the thing is, is there's a lot of, uh, I guess it's kind of in a way it doesn't pertain to a wide audience. It doesn't, it doesn't pertain to your fucking normies, your yeah. general population, your normal people, yeah. right? It doesn't the well, way yours does. Well, and dude, there's look, there's, there's cringy stuff in the movie. Cringy to, to we do cringy myself. shit though. That's we're humans. <laughs> like, like there's you know, there's a line where I gotta I gotta introduce hot shots. So like, oh, they're like the Navy SEALs wildland fire. Like, I know that's that's cliche. It's stupid. <laughs> but but you gotta understand, I'm look, there's this debate in in philosophy and anthropology of who's best suited to study and tell the story of a culture or of a civilization, an insider or an outsider. Because there, there's merits to both, right? So an insider knows, you know, a lot of the old traditions and knows the language and, you know, knows um, certain streets to go down. The jargon, and everything. Here's the thing, though. An outsider is going to notice a lot of nuance and details that the insider takes for granted. In the same way that Michael Jordan would be an awful basketball coach because he had so much talent. He will not be able to communicate to a lesser being how to do the things that he does yeah. because it's, it just sort of, it's automatic. And so there's, there's merit to having an outsider 
study something because they're going to pick up on all that contrast that they have being an outsider. Ultimately, you want some kind of synergy, which I sort of had. I have this unique perspective where I come from Hollywood. I come from marketing. My partner at that time is a hotshot. So I have a front row seat. So I get a good education. I get to learn all the jargon, right? I can understand operations. I can learn all these things, but I still... You did the reps too. I mean, you got your sure. your basic 40 and all that stuff. You trained with the crew and all that stuff. So, I mean, well, you walk the walk for the most part. And beyond that, I did, dude, I, I would do the hotshot hike just about every day. And I would, I would put on, you know, usually between like 45 and 60 pounds and tr- try to do it because the, I remember going to some fires and when I, well, I finally got some where it was like, not just an IA close to the road, but deep in the cut or off the five freeway yeah. where you got to hike uphill and like a pass or something. Dude, yeah. That place is a nightmare. It's like straight up. And, and I got broke off and I missed some really rad stuff. I missed hot shots going direct right at the fire's edge. And dude, if you're 30 seconds late, you miss a lot because that, that stuff is out quickly. Yeah. You can't show and up for the tie in. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I realized like, dude, I have to get better at this or else I'm never going to be able to accomplish this. And so I did that hike. God knows how many times. And I put in the work and I would do a pack test as my cool down every night, just to like put on a podcast. I'd walk around the neighborhood for three miles with, you know, a weight vest on and just, just sort of meditate. But like, until you actually go and do that work and understand the people who are in it, you're never going to be able to tell the story in the first place. And the mainstream press has no interest in doing any of that. They want sound advice, man. Well, and there's, there's a lot of people who've wanted to do that. I remember the crew from the deadliest catch, they tried to do a hotshot doc. They, they couldn't get through one day because they couldn't hike. And I've heard other dudes tell me these stories, like, you know, um, film crews would come in or press would come in and like, Oh, we want to document what you guys do. <laughs> good luck keeping up. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. It's cause dude, it's, it's basically impossible. I don't think people understand just how hard the work is. I didn't even get it. And, and I, I knew hot shots, like, and I'd been on a bunch of fires too, but it's like, until you really get those bigger IAs or, or the campaign fires where you're deep in the cut, and there's no option of taking your vehicle anywhere near it. Then it's like, you realize, dude, these, these people are savages. They're on a whole other level. Oh, yeah. And so I really committed to try, trying to do it right. But back to the point of, of sort of being, being an outsider and bringing the perspective of Hollywood, you got to understand that there's, there's certain things that you guys take for granted that the public just doesn't understand. And I have to try to figure out how to translate this stuff, how to communicate why fuels matter, right? Explain the fire ladder in 30 seconds. And how do you do that? Small shit lights to medium shit, medium shit lights on heavy shit. And then it's off to the races. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, and that's again, and that's it. But like, how do you show it? That's a good, yeah. And the way you explained that in the film is fucking brilliantly done. I mean, especially like it's something as innocuous as like a chain dragging, like which you used, you know, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but (laughs) think of how many roadside starts that we have that come into these uh, areas like Cone Pass and you have all of a sudden a conflagration going, ripping up the the freeway in this shitty steep terrain. It's, it's, it's hard, man. Well, and, and you touched on a point that to me was very important. It, it's like the, the, the most powerful force in the universe starts with the tiniest little spark. Mm-hmm. And people 
in the, the mainstream dialogue about wildfire, they, they're very much obsessed with ignitions. Yes. Very much obsessed with the source of the ignition. Oh, is it a space laser? Oh is my God. Lines? Don't give me, just, don't give me on my dude, box. Dude. I, know, I know this is so much, this is so much fun dealing with these morons. <laughs> but like, regardless whether or not it's something stupid, like a space laser or people who look arsonists are a problem. But again, the fixation on ignitions is not as important as securing the fuels around the stuff that you don't want to burn. Okay. And so what I tried to do with my flick was to show just how easy it is for a fire to start. We obsess on all these things. We focus on ignitions. We focus on the weather. We focus on things that frankly, we're never going to stop or change. Yeah. But in the wildfire triangle, the three ingredients that you must have in order to have a wildfire, the right weather, fuels, and the ignition, we focus on the two that we can't change. Because even if we stop every ignition, we'll still have lightning. Yeah. We'll still have cars, cars like the car fire, one of the most destructive fires in California history was some dude's tire blew out. Stuff happens, man. You're not going to be able to stop every ignition. You're not going to be able to change the weather. No, you're so not. So those two, those two elements are out. But notice, those are the two things we focus on. We only focus on climate and how the fires start. But the one thing that we can control, the fuels, we never focus on. And so I felt like... It's because it was, it's hard. <laughs> well, it's, it's simple. It's simple, but, it, but it's, it takes a lot of work. Right. It's a simple idea, but it takes a lot of work, takes the commitment, takes the commitment of resources... And it takes a, a realignment of what our values are. Yeah. And frankly, shifting the, the sort of the focus of the wildfire industrial complex away from just putting money into suppression. And it's easy to get a blank check for suppression because, you know, fires are scary. And when fire is racing down towards your home, you'll shell out whatever it takes to stop that thing. Oh, yeah. But people won't take a couple hours to just take a weed whip and clear out the brush behind their home. Or the fine fuels. I mean, if you were to even clear out the fine fuels alone around, I mean, you could sit in a, you could probably sit out there. I mean, I'm going to be, this is a stretch. So bear with me, but if you yeah. were to clear out all of the fine fuels and grasses and stuff like that out of your yard, you could probably take an angle grinder to a piece of steel and just spray it into some brush. And it's probably not going to ignite. Uh, dude, I have this argument with people all the time, especially with, with all this stupid, the, the theories about Maui, you know, again, this, this is yeah, part of what drove me to go around that. Dude, this is what drove me to, to try to do as real a documentary as possible about this. Because when I witnessed the discussion about wildfires, when suddenly people, when suddenly it enters the mainstream and p- people in the general public are talking about wildfires, you reveal just how dumb they are. And people who will point out like, oh, this, look, this home was reduced to ash, but the trees are still standing. It's like, what are the trees tree, are living? It's a living thing. It's fucking full water of water. Fucking moron. Yeah. What, what, dude, when you go to Home Depot to get studs to, to build a wall in your house, kiln it, says, dried. it says KD on it for a reason. Everything in your house is just, and it's built with oxygen in the middle. It's built like exactly how you want a furnace to be full of hydrocarbons yep. and plastics and petroleum. Accelerants. Oh, dude, it's, it's so absurd. And, and look, anyone who's been on a wildfire knows that if you, sh- if you only see the aftermath, it looks like a nuke went off. Yeah. And sometimes it is crazy, but I've been on a lot of urban conflagrations. What's the reality? A house takes like three, four, six, seven hours to burn to, to ash, right? It takes a long time. It does. 
And, and sometimes it's pretty boring. There's been a lot of times that I left. There's a whole neighborhood on fire. And I left because it's boring. It's just, all right, this thing is, just, there's a ton of hydrocarbons in there. It's going to burn all night. And then you come back the next day and it's flat and gray. It looks like a nuke went off after the fact, but the actual process of it was actually rather benign. And these trees can take a ton of heat. And so when, when people see this aftermath where they see an entire neighborhood that's just white ash, they don't realize that the fire was probably just spreading from house to house to house to house. Yeah, to you're house. getting flame impingement from house to house at that point. Right. And ember cast. But you're not getting this running crown fire that just steamrolled the neighborhood. That's not how it no, happened. The crown fire, even if it did pass through that neighborhood, it's long past and the homes burned down yeah. well after. Right. This is a well-documented thing. Well, it's <laughs> they a, even teach but, it in like your S courses. That, right. And I was about you to can, say, it's, it's you can in the even manual. use a fucking home as a safety zone exactly. for exactly crown fire. It right. passes. Once it's all clear, the house may be on fire, but it's going to burn a hell of a lot slower than the surrounding fuels that have already burned because they're right. less and again, right? you know this because this is in the firefighting manual. Like literally, hey, yeah. if you don't have a safety zone, then you need to let the fire front push through. Then come come back when it's safe and try to save some structures if you can. Yeah. Right. Because That's good. structure triage 101, man. 101. And I've seen this multiple times where some of the municipal guys who are who are on structure protection, they just went inside the house and they just they just camped out. Sometimes they would put on their SCBAs um, and they would let the fire front push through and then they'd come out by fire. Yeah. Like and that's, that's the okay. safest way to do it. hundred percent. Because homes homes can actually take a ton of heat. Oh, People yeah. would be surprised. It was, I saw more homes burning down just remotely because of ember cast than when the, the fire front was ripping through the backyard. Homes can take a ton of direct radiant heat. But when that ember gets in through your vent and gets into the attic, sometimes you'll see a home that's on fire that's not even remotely close to the wildland interface. It's deep in the neighborhood surrounded by concrete. But that one ember found its way in. And coming back to the point of like, we're so fixated on climate was so fixated on ignitions and we'll, we'll spend money on drones and stuff, but we won't take 10 minutes to seal up the eaves. Clear, it's clear as simple as that really. That's most likely going to save your home. And then you'll end up being that home that the crazy people are theorizing about where all those other homes burned, but that one didn't, that must be Oprah's home. That's like, no, that was just that one person who, used to be a firefighter and he actually cleared out his vents, you know, cleared out the gutters, was responsible. And this stuff happens. It's normal. If you're in operations, if you have wildfire experience, none of this stuff is weird. But look at what the public sees. They see the soundbite they, or they see the 30 second video clip with no nuance attached to it. No, no background information or like crash course in fire behavior or how fuels burn. Right. So who's going to tell that story? Who's going to tell that story? And, and that's, that was the Even big if, challenge. That's another thing too, though. You told that story very well, but I think a lot of people are going to be remaining kind of cognitively dissonant about it. And this is, this is like the pessimist in me because yeah. no one cares about like the, the happy homeowner who yeah their shit saved. They want to see the destruction. I, I swear to God, dude, it's like, it's like the algorithms on uh, Facebook and Instagram. If you start seeing like negative shit and you like it, it starts feeding you more negative shit. So, oh yeah, and dude, yeah. To to that point, not only does the public want to see the destruction, the journalists want to see the destruction, 
And yep. I have that segment in my film that I know a lot of people are going to, it, it might rub them the wrong way. It might not well, win some friends, but it needed to yeah, be said. But I don't care about them because, because these people are, are clowns. The, the media have beclowned themselves in so many ways. And the, the amount of times that I would have these stringers and these news guys cheering on the destruction. I remember going to the Woolsey fire and this, this old restaurant that my mom used to take me to because we grew up in Agora Hills, right on PCH. I'm sitting there watching it burn to the ground, thinking about my childhood. And I was the only one there because, you know, resources were so scattered. There's no one there to do structure defense. It was just, all right, it's gone. And then these three stringers show up and they, they come running up the driveway with their cameras. They're like, burn, baby, burn. This and is someone's like livelihood. Yeah, dude. It, it is so disgusting to me. And, and that's just one example. And I should go through my footage because I may have been rolling when they, when they came up. And so I might even have that on audio, but that's like not a good color to wear on anybody, man. I mean, don't no. get me wrong. Firefighters. Yeah. A lot of wildland firefighters, they pray for a fire. There's two reasons for that. One is because they want to help first and foremost, yeah. but two, they got to make that overtime because like we previously said, the fucking pay sucks. So they were completely reliant on overtime and hazard pay mm -hmm. just in order to survive through the winter. Oh, sure. But dude, that's a okay, difference. So There's a major difference there. No one likes to hear that. No one likes to want to right. hear that part out loud. But when somebody's right. trying to like you, it's, it's what, what is it called? The, the, the disaster profiteering or tragedy oh, sure. profiteering, man. But dude, that's, that's not profiteering. Like if, and you know, this as well as anybody, but like, if you know anything about the salaries that these guys make and the dependence on overtime and not just a little overtime, we're talking like as a hotshot, you got, you got to pull like a thousand plus 1100, 1200 hours of overtime. And for, for people who don't, they're not good at math. Like me, that's over six months worth of full-time 40 hours a week work on top of your on top six of, to eight month employment. Right. Yeah. In that small window. So during, during that, the five months where you're concentrated in fire season, that's when you're pulling six months worth of full-time overtime. And that's just to be able to pay your rent in Los Angeles County, the most expensive county on the planet. Yeah. And, you know, they have to position these dudes around multi-million dollar homes because those are the resources that they, they're, you know, tasked to protect, but they can't afford to live there. And so these dudes are living out in freaking Palmdale or they're sleeping at the barracks or some dudes are, they're even sleeping in their own freaking car. Oh yeah. You know, we're dating some, some old chick who's got some money <laughs> you know, who's, who, who will be okay with them being gone for six months out of the year because they got to hustle. Like, dude, that's pretty crazy. But like, dude, to your point, needing or wanting the forest to burn. So you have some work is different from watching houses burn and cheering it on. dude. Fire is healthy for the forest. It is. We need to burn it. I mean, like we don't have a fire adapted ecosystem in the West. We have a fire dependent for the ecosystem. most part. Yeah. Well, the lodgepole pine, for example, it can't even germinate until that resinous pine cone burns and explodes and this and the seeds pop out. Not too familiar so, with the lodgepoles, but I know like uh like the giant sequoias, mm -hmm. they're fire dependent as well. Uh redwoods, shit. I mean, you could there's a lot of species out there that are fire dependent. They can't even propagate unless you put like the right amount of intensity fire underneath right. it. Right. Even beyond just the, the propagation aspect, 
There's all the other ancillary benefits that, of course, our, our indigenous ancestors understood. They had they had reasons for putting fire on the ground, right? Yeah, it's fertilizer, and, man. Look at all the game that returns, all the fresh fronds that come up and like deer come in, birds start coming in. That's, yeah, exactly. Stuff. So you, you're attracting grazing animals that you can then hunt. It also it gives you a little bit more visibility on predators. Um, and then the other thing that, that I learned was um, just, and you see this, obviously, you see all the wildfires that, that come in afterwards and the return of pollinators yep because all those those beautiful wildflowers attract more pollinators and so of course everything thrives in the wake of a fire and it doesn't take long right it, especially if it's a late season fire within a couple months i mean i got some footage to show you of how quickly pollinators return to a burned environment oh really that'd yeah. be great yeah 15 minutes less than 15, <laughs> like less than 15 minutes all these pollinators were back and there's a prescribed fire that we did no, no, oh, they're actual bees. I mean, yeah, there's some wasps in there too, but they're looking for, you know, stuff that might've gotten a little bit barbecued. They want a hot, hot meal, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard about this. I've never, I never actually saw that in person, but that's so cool. Yeah, it's, I'll show it to you in a little bit after we get done rolling here, dude. You're gonna trip. Wow, that's so cool. Because I mean, obviously, look, I, I saw almost immediate benefit return, especially on late season fires, like the Woolsey fire, which is a November fire. Yeah, low intensity, good fire, man. Right. And, and look, the thing is like, they're, they're going to be high intensity because we have such a backlog of fuels that we are in a, we're on a pretty tight spot. And, and to your point earlier about how we have to be more judicious, there's certain fires that we can't let them just do their thing. Yeah. There's a time you know? and place for it. Right. Right. Because we've put ourselves in that corner and we need to get ahead of it. Um, but to the point of like the way that, that journalists cheer on fire Versus how a firefighter may want to go and make his living. We're talking about a forest fire with ecological benefit and his work, which has ecological benefit when, you know, they're, they're taking a scalpel to the forest and steering things where they need to go versus someone cheering on the destruction of somebody's life. Yeah. And so many of these news people thrive off of that and they only profit with the destruction. That's all they focus on. Uh, a lot of times, like on the Bobcat fire in particular, there are tons of news vans because it was in LA proper. And so, of course, every camera bro was out there. Just coming and out these, of the woodworks. Dude, these news vans would drive up to me because, you know, I was, I was watching Valiermo sort of tie in this corner and secure this piece. And they're not interested in watching that. But they would drive up and see me and they would say, hey, do you know where the homes are burning? Wow. And I'm like, no, they, I mean, they caught it. They caught it right here. And these dudes would be like, fuck. Like, literally. They'd be pissed. Cussing. Out loud, pissed. And, and the dude says, ah, I guess I'll go home now. And it's like, like dude, have some dignity. Even if that's what you're thinking internally, like, dude, I can't sell this footage. I can't sell footage of hotshots doing work. I understand the need to make a living too, you know? Right. Yeah. But have some dignity that you don't, you don't swear. The other thing, and you see this in the film, I've seen news people freaking taking selfies in front of burning homes. That ain't and cool. Dude, I've been doing That's this just so flat long. out disrespectful, man. I've seen it so much, though. I've seen it too, I, man. In my fire I started cover. filming it. Yeah, I started filming it. And that's why I have that segment on the fire pornographers in the movie, because it's gotten so bad. It's become such a circus that it's it really does stand out. And it's more distracting than the fire itself to watch how these people behave. How they put themselves in front of a running head fire so they can get the cool shot for their remote. And then they end up getting cut off by the fire and have to run out of there. 
Yeah. It's like, and they don't have on the proper PPE. They're not taking it seriously. And when they tell the story, they're bullshitting you the whole time. And they make sure that you never understand what really needs to happen in order to fix it. Right. Again, they're going to focus on the two elements of the fire triangle that we can't control. And we're not going to get to the core issue. And so this stuff's never going to get solved. But guess who's going to get blamed when that fire runs through that neighborhood? You are. It's your fault. Forest Service. Why did you why did you guys let it burn for so long before taking action? It's like, look, man, if this thing runs away from us, it's because we, we haven't got rid of enough fuels because you guys won't support it. This is your fault, dude. You have to take personal responsibility. The thing is, the media is not interested in telling that story. And they, they just have too many perverse incentives to tell other stories. And so that's why like, I felt this need to something's got to be out there that's just honest and straightforward and unbiased. Here's another complication of that too, is like, yeah, the media wants to sensationalize this, right? I mean, there are some fires that should be sensationalized, right? Like the August complex, what was that? Million plus acres? That's that's fucking insane, man. We've had bigger fires. I mean, shit, the big burn, 1910, that went 3 million acres in three days. Million acres a day. Ed Pulaski, 10 a.m. policy. Now we're fucking ourselves for the future, right? However, (laughs) it's known. But the thing is, back to the PR problem with the Forest Service is they're not good at telling the story because they're too risk adverse or they don't know how to tell the story or why they should tell a story or even where to begin. You know, here's another thing too. You know why Cal Fire gets like a wave and hugs and praise and all that shit? Everybody's like widely respected, general public wise, respects Cal Fire. You know why? Yeah, the Navy pants, right? You know why? Because they're a PR agency with a firefighting side hustle. They tell their story. 100%. So we're just as bad as some of these fire pornographers. However, it's a different kind of nuance. We don't tell the story. They tell the story and it's all like, you know, ratings, fire and brimstone when it's sometimes it's not. I mean, but then again, I'm biased because I've normalized this kind of stuff. And so have you over the course of the filming of of your documentary. Well, that's again... Look, if I had just spent two years shooting this, I would have made a kind of raw, raw, generic wildfire film. It was only by being in it with through the course of entropy over six years and getting beaten down by it that you start to shake off those those preconceived notions about what the wildfire world is, the physics of the fire, the traditions and all that, and what the needs are. And... I got very humbled and I got progressively more conservative as I filmed, as I learned more. Cal Fire is, they're, they're great with their PR. They have I mean, them, yeah. Straight out of Hollywood. They're, they're outstanding. Um, and, you know, look, a lot of them do great work. Um, they differ from the Forest Service. I've seen a lot of conflict between Forest Service employees and Cal Fire employees on, on the fire line. Oh, yeah. Like I've seen Cal Fire Division guys pushing uh, the uh, one of the hotshot crews to burn faster. They're like, "Nah, well, I, I don't care if it takes us all night. We're gonna feather this in." Yeah. Right? And then There's there were other times. There were other times they didn't want to put any fire on the ground, and it took a hotshot soup to <laughs> do what you had described about uh, the the Goshu fire. Mm-hmm. I saw a similar thing where. I'll, I'll keep names out of it, but it was this one crew and it was up in Northern California. And every day this fire was making a big push, a nice, almost a 30,000 acre push every single day, because right around three o'clock, you get this onshore flow 
that was pushing it through the forest out towards the desert. So now it's coming over this rock escarpment and it's now established coming downhill into this town on the desert floor. Fire would always moderate at night. So they're there, it's eight o'clock at night, fire's moderated, it's mid slope. Okay. So they start Sounds putting like a target of opportunity to me. Perfect, right? They, they get their dozer line established. They get two blades. That's it. And then they were just going to leave it at the toe of the slope. Just dozer line. Why are you going to let it and slam your line, though? Exactly. Remove so, the fuel. So, Hotshot Soup. Seems to be a talking, theme with this. <laughs> right. Soup is talking to Division. And he's like, uh, we, we need to burn this piece. And he's like, well, we don't want to put any unnecessary fire on the ground. You're talking about that risk averse mindset, right? And he's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And then three o'clock when the winds pick up, this thing's going to slam across your dozer line, burn up all these homes, jump the railroad tracks, burn up some more homes, jump the highway and run all the way across state lines into Nevada. But yeah, that's fine. He said it just like that. And so then suit was... The division suit was kind of embarrassing, like, all right, fine, you can burn your piece, but we're not going to do any other firing. So they stayed up all night. They'd been on day shift. They, they ran a 24-hour shift so they could secure their burn. They, they, they slept. Well, they rested, <laughs> monitoring, babysitting that burn to make sure that the fuel's consumed and didn't jump the line. And the next day at 3 o'clock, what happened? Sure shit. Winds picked up, jumped the dozer line, burned up all the homes, jumped the railroad tracks, burned up some more homes. Jumped the freeway, ran all the way into to Nevada with a couple of fire tornadoes along the way. And the one piece that didn't do that was where, where this crew had burned. And the thing is, they had gone to bed. They were just waking up like in the middle of this, this shit running through the town. Just waking up to the, a so shit storm. Like, you know, they're just like wiping the sleep out of their eyes like... Oh, a lot of people are screaming. <laughs> Big gulps, huh? <laughs> so, then they probably just wrangled a couple of private dozers and went like over here. And they went and saved two more homes. Yeah. And they and went to work all night. And so I went back to that piece that I'd watched them burn the night before. I drove through all this destruction and I see 30 homes pristine. Like nothing had ever happened. Right behind that corner that they they burned. Because he took the initiative to shame division into letting him burn and saved 30 homes. And I drove all the way back to the other division where they were at. So I could let them know. I'm like, Hey, just so you guys know that piece that you burned, you guys probably saved 30 homes. They're like, Oh, that's cool. And <laughs> it's just like home, nonchalant. Dude, but that's the thing. I, it made me realize it's like normalized nobody man. Ever tells them. Yeah. Nobody ever tells them that they just saved 30 homes. God knows how many times that's happened right. where it's, it's not necessarily directly tangible, right? It made me realize in that moment, no one had ever come back and say, Hey, you guys just, you guys saved our lives. Like all of our memories were in there. Like our pets were in there. No one's ever going to come and let them know. They'll say it generically. You'll see those, those signs where it was like, thank you firefighters, yeah. but they're not firefighters. They're forestry technicians. No one's thanking the forestry technicians. No one's ever letting them know the results of their work. This is someone who went above and beyond. He could have just accepted his orders or she, maybe it was a she. Um, they could have just accepted their orders and then they, they'd lose all those homes yeah. and nobody would know the difference. And they would just move on and do the, the work the next day. But these forestry technicians decided that, ah, eh, this is important. We know better. We're going to try to nudge a little bit. And they got the work done and they saved a bunch of homes. Who's, who's telling that story? Who's ever going to know? For the most part, nobody. Nobody. 
it's not to say that like Cal Fire is bad at fighting wildfire or anything like that. They just have a different mission, right? That's well, another look, thing. I mean, it's yeah. it's easy to like say like, oh yeah, well, hotshots are not like the end all be all. Yeah, are they a very crucial po- uh, component of the wildfire game? Absolutely. There's also engines. There's Cal Fire. There's dozers. There's dispatch, and often underrepresented, underappreciated part of that because yeah. without dis- oh, yeah. dispatch, fuck, we would be done. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's like all these things. There's smoke jumpers. There's like all these cooperators, and they all have their specific missions and their special uh, specialties, right? But at the end of the day, when you have a an all risk department like Cal Fire, you're diluting your experience. Yep. You're not specializing, which I see total value in. But when you're primarily responsible for medicals and MVAs and you know structure fires and that kind yep. of shit with a wild inside hustle, yeah, we need your help. I'm not going to tell you to get off the fucking fire line that you don't know what you're doing because there's plenty of Cal Fire uh, people that know what the fuck they're doing. Even some that came from the feds, like career hotshots that went and did the the fresh boot rookie school with Cal Fire. But for the most part, they have a different mission than the speciality of these wildland specific departments, whether that's BIA or BLM, Forest Service, yeah. whatever. And look, that wasn't that wasn't a Cal Fire screw up. No. That, these are individuals making decisions. And, and like you said, if you're an all hazard agency, then it, look, you, you describe all these different people from dispatch to smoke jumpers and everything along the spectrum. It's about synergy, sharing, sharing knowledge, sharing wisdom, wisdom, expertise. And what happened there was a synergistic approach. He had a dialogue with division soup. He had his own way of explaining it. And then he got permission to do it. He didn't have to step outside the lines. He just had to help him understand it. And it worked. And, and from, from his perspective and, and like anyone who's fought fire along the 395 in that area. <laughs> That's dude, my old duty station is Doyle, California, dude, man. And dude, there's some FLAs out of Doyle, you know, from, from the eighties and nineties. Eagle fire. Dude. That's the thing. It's like, that's, that's where that sense of urgency comes from is having that wisdom of what happens over that rock escarpment, when fire starts coming down towards the 295 next to Honey Lake, uh-huh. you're gonna dude, you're gonna get fire tornadoes. You're gonna get some nasty fire. You're gonna have fires spotting. You're gonna have spotting potential for mile plus. Yeah. So that's why you can't just put a, two blades down at the toe of the slope and then leave it. And but at the end of the day, look, man, I've I've seen Cal Fire do some great stuff. Oh yeah. And and I will say that there, look, there's there's some conflicts sometimes between. The Forest Service approach and the Cal Fire approach. Cal Fire is very focused on point protection mm-hmm. and not necessarily going direct. There's times I actually agree with that. I'm like, dude, fuck nice. that hill. Just, just, just like go behind the structures. Yeah. So, there's no values at risk. I mean, what's right. is the values at risks at, at risk worth the live mm-hmm. or the potential risk in, encountered by like either the public or the personnel that are engaging that fire? That's the big right. decision there, and a lot of people don't understand that too. Right. Like and, and, right. And there's also the public pressure is going to dictate some of the policy. So I guarantee you that that dude who was not eager to put fire in the ground, it's not that he didn't want to put fire in the ground or he didn't see the value of it because clearly he okayed it. It just had to be with a dude who's really dialed and has a great reputation in the wildfire community that he could trust. Yeah. Ultimately, his reticence to put fire in the ground comes from, I don't want to get crucified. I don't want to get crucified if something goes wrong. So ultimately it comes down to better education. We have to educate the public. So um, the normies 
can understand fire behavior and understand why they do what they do or why they're not doing what they're like, why are you guys just letting the fire come downhill? It's like, well, it's backing fire. It's not going to be that strong. And like, we want this to come down because once the fuels are gone, there's no threat. Yeah. The normies don't even have the remotest sense of this. The news media are not helping them do that because they reduce it to this sort of clown like show. They're not getting adequate information. The Forest Service has fucking smoky bear stomping out campfires. Like that's that's the problem. You know what I mean? Nobody's doing the education. And so I saw it as like my personal responsibility to try to do a film that gives a crash course so people can understand the the bare essentials, the fundamentals of ignitions are easy, understand the fire ladder, and that if you get rid of the fuels, you don't have a fire. You got to take personal responsibility and have have better urban planning. I have that that scene from the Silverado fire where you have 85 mile per hour winds throwing this fire down at this super wealthy community, but they had great urban planning. They had this huge green belt around the community, and the fire didn't do anything because it can't. Yeah, it so has nothing like, to burn. It has nothing to burn. It's the fire so triangle. People, if you take away one part, fuel, oxygen, and yeah, dude, if you take away one part of it, it's just going to fall part. over. Just one. Yeah, it's like. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, again, focusing on all these variables that don't really matter when you could just focus on one, kick out that one leg of the tripod, the whole thing falls off. So, but step one is education. Mm -hmm. The only way that we're going to educate, it's not some dude just, you know, wearing a GoPro while he's cutting on cutting line. There has to be something that's entertaining that's visually compelling, that feels like a movie that's digestible because the reality is most people don't care about wildfire. Well, it's a faraway problem. It's a faraway problem until it's not. And the moment that it's not a faraway problem, it's too it's late. It's a real big fucking problem. It's a real big problem. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, dude, like stop, stop wasting your time putting solar panels on your roof. Spend a day getting rid of the fuels around your house. That's going to do a lot more. Obviously. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this this was a big part of my mission was, was education, trying to introduce some of this stuff in a way that is digestible because I'm a normie, because I was one of those guys who yeah, until a fire was in my backyard and I started taking it more seriously, I didn't know anything about wildfire. And so through the through the six years of making the movie, I had that experience of learning this stuff. And so I felt like I was in a position to distill that into a crash course. So that you too can have the normie to wildfire understanding experience. And so I do hope that people take that away. But more than anything, I hope they take away the human experience of what, what these folks do. That's and a it's big not one, just, dude. And it's not a bitch fest. No. As you well know. I mean, you've seen the movie probably a couple of times. It's not a bitch fest. <laughs> I've seen the OG cut. You said right. the OG cut. <laughs> yeah. You saw the real. Yeah. And I uh, dude, it's too bad that people don't get to see the original version, but um, it's not about complaining about stuff. And frankly, the reaction that I get from most dudes who were, who were operators is it makes them miss the job. And to your point about the Forest Service being so risk averse, they would never make this movie. They you're not going to see this never. in like any escort. You're not going to see this in your fire refresher. I'm sorry, dude. but it, look, I wish it was played in your fire refresher. Well, it might. The thing is that, look, there are people in the agency who are getting more receptive and they're more forward thinking. And, and they've, they've reached out to me and expressed that they really, they do like what the film does. And 
look, being risk averse means that they're not going to want to convey them. If you, if I gave them a choice, they wouldn't want to convey the messages that I put in the film. Yeah, it's saying the but quiet once, parts out loud. Right. But the thing is, the moment it hits the public, they're going to realize the public likes this. People are going to respond very positively to this. So all of your, your fears and your concerns are unfounded. You're just, so you're just, you're robbing the public of a good education because you think, oh, they're not going to like it. They're going to freak out. No, they're not. They're going to connect these people. They're going to see human beings. They're going to think, man, these, these dudes and these chicks work their butts off. This is incredible. Um, look at the sacrifice that they're making. Oh, I had no idea. That's how fires work. Oh, that's why they put fire in the red. That's why we see that helicopter with the, the helitorch. Yeah. Oh, that's not conspiracy stuff. Like, guys, no, that's necessary. This is, this is good stuff to be con- conveying to the public. But like, if I were cooperating with the agency, if I weren't, if it weren't just me being a bro with a camera and a press pass, just going and doing it, it would never get done. But think of, think of how deleterious that is to the cause. People being risk averse about something that ultimately is fun and makes people want to do the job. This, ironically, I guarantee you, is going to increase recruitment within the Forest Service. It's not going to make people think, oh, that Forest Service sucks. Hot shotting sucks. It's going to be your loudest idiots in the room, though. But those are people that no one gives a shit about They're losers, dude. It's only the do-nothing people who complain about this stuff. Look, you don't have to like the movie. And you can disagree with a couple of my conclusions, the way that I frame things. It's like, hey, the thing I always tell people is like whenever they disagree with something I put in there, I'm like, hey, you should make a movie about it. I'll be the first one in line to pay to see it. Yeah. Well, let's spend a decade and do it. Well, I think that's why conversations like this are so important, right? Long form, unscripted, unedited. I mean, you just, you lay it out there. You're being 100% authentically yourself. Yeah. I mean, you're describing what your mission was, what everything, the meaning behind it, why you did it. And that's admirable, man. Well, more people need to understand that instead of a 30 second soundbite or like a fucking <laughs> a, a minute and a half teaser. It's like, oh, this is fucking stupid. Blah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, this or PIA that or BLM this. And yeah, yeah. it's like, come yeah. on. And, and there's more yeah, to ultimately, it. Ultimately, dude, when, when I have to, I have to try to market the movie or figure out, you know, how to do a trailer or how to like, what kind of language to use. There's always going to be people who are annoyed by it. Yeah. Right. And I see, dude, I see some of the hotshots roll their eyes at the part where it's like, oh, they're like the Navy SEALs of Wildlife Park. Yeah, like, we don't but, think that, but the I know. general public's going to understand that. Exactly. And this, look, this was something that I ran into trying to convince some of the people who are on camera, like, God, this, this is okay. You don't look like a dork. Like, yes, your colleagues are going to make you buy them beers. Everyone's, everyone's going to tease you. That's part of the rules, man. Sure. Ice cream beers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's not going to be like fire chasers where everyone's going to be laughing at you. Think people, I'm telling you, the reaction to this film has been overwhelming. When people watch this, and I'm talking from 30 year veterans in wildland fire, like grizzled old men who look like Forrest Gump when, when he decides to stop running are in tears talking about how much it affected them. I've gotten phone calls from some guys who are very hardened dudes who've been on the fire line a long time and it moved them very deeply. But even people who I don't know, who have no connection to fire, no understanding of it whatsoever, are reacting to it viscerally because I think we what we did right is, frankly, I, I did what you said I should do years ago when you told me that- Oh, I don't you blame this on me, motherfucker. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, no, but you, yeah, for everyone, 
it was Brandon who told me years ago over a, a friggin' Instagram DM, like, Hey, the fire footage is rad. You need to go get staging. You need to go when we're just shooting the shit. And all of that interpersonal, interstitial stuff, that's where the real soul and humanity is. Oh, yeah. And you were 100% right. And that was the most difficult stuff to get because the fire porn is easy to get. It's everywhere. Yeah. Getting those quiet moments and getting the culture meant staying up all night, staging with them, or being on a burn show, a 24-hour burn show all night and sitting down next to them when they're eating on the fire line. And then getting all of that in-between stuff, that's what really makes it real and, and makes them human beings. It doesn't look dorky. Like People look cool, even in their crappy moments where they're going tits up on the line. Throw it, it up and shit. It's, that's part of it. It looks cool. Yeah. Like That kind of struggle is cool. It's admirable. It's, so, it's, it's raw and it's real. And the normies are resonating with it yeah. in a way that this stupid, you know, the, the cow fire kind of shows that are out there are just so dorky or just fixating on inmates. Like they, everyone just wants to, to do the movie about inmate firefighters. And it's like, God, there's these dudes who are out there for the last, you know, for like 20 years doing this work and nobody's telling their story. No one's telling the real story, the real story. Yeah. And, and it's like, look, only the brave, was it was pretty good, but it was still hokey. And you know, look, I know some dudes who were who were on that fire. It's it's a it was a complex incident, and you're never going to be able to tell that story properly or do it justice, especially in a Disney kind of setting. Yeah, because um, we are very not a PC kind of culture. I mean, no. rated R right off the bat. Right off the bat. And look, I, I had to be a little judicious about that. But at the end of the day, look, there's there's some cuss words in the movie. It's it's raw, it's real, but there's nothing in there that's that's dangerous or bad or offensive. There's nothing in there like that. And so all the fear of, of being risk averse, it's it's totally misguided and it's resonating with people. And it's resonating with people across the political spectrum. And it, it doesn't feel like a political movie. You would never be able to guess how I vote based on watching this film, I guarantee you, if anyone can guess who I voted for in 2016 from watching this movie, who doesn't know me personally and doesn't know my actual voting record, I will give you my camera because you will never guess. Huh. You'll, you'll never be able to guess. I promise you. And people from the far left wing of the spectrum love it for certain, certain aspects that frankly, I was kind of surprised by. Really? You know, you got like an example? Yeah. Well, without giving spoilers. I don't spend any time talking about climate. I think it's a bullshit argument to be had because it is so absolutely polarizing. Like we talked about earlier off the, off the roll, but I, I don't, do I believe in climate change? Yeah, I do. I do to some degree, right? Do I believe in taking that, that, that word, that phrase out of the conversation? Right. Absolutely. Why don't we just replace that with environment change? Like climate is macro environment <laughs> is directly what's in front of us. We can have a, yeah. Like the whole rock analogy, like you pick up a rock and yeah. you skip it across a lake. You just change the environment. Well, dude, Las Vegas gets more rain now because there's more swimming pools. There's now all of a sudden all these water sources in the middle of the desert. So evaporation, there's, yeah. there's more evaporation, more precipitation. Look, it's real. And dude, we've been doing in California, 
we've been doing weather modification in terms of, you know, um, uh, ionizing particles in the air to yeah. try to induce rainfall for 60 years. That's just well been going known. on since the 1930s, I want to say, or 40s. Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's well over 60 years. And I know it, it sounds sort of like conspiracy theory stuff, but dude, it's the power companies that are doing it because they're trying to fill the, re- help fill the reservoirs. Military industrial complex too. Oh, dude. I mean, that's, that's where it's. That's where it started. Yeah, Vietnam. Right. It was used as a weapon. Well, not a weapon, but it was uh, designed to, I think it was like silver iodine or something like that. Yeah, they put it in the it, atmosphere and it would try, it'd basically, I don't know, take all the water molecules out. It'd stick to the silver iodine and then precipitate. So they would keep the enemy down. They couldn't flood move it out. anything. Yeah, they couldn't yeah. move any logistics. Oh yeah. And if, if you rely on a network of tunnels and you get this massive monsoonal rain that doesn't stop and every bit of moisture that's in the air comes down, you're going to flood them out. Yep. Look, it's like, it's real. It's stuff. well so, documented. Yes. It's real. Yeah. Now, yeah. is it being used to control like, I don't know, some Alex Jones style weather event shit? I highly doubt it. I highly, highly doubt it. Look, the, here's the unsexy thing. Most problems in this world are pretty simple. And most people's motives are pretty banal. Most people just want to make more money. You know, it's, it's often not like some Dr. Evil stroking a white cat, like plotting. What's, some what's that movie thing. where, uh, it's like the end of the world movie with the uh, meteor that's going to crash into the, the planet. Have you seen that? Which one? Armageddon? No, no, no. It was a recent Deep one. Impact? No, it was a recent one. And it's just basically a, a whole riff on like society and how. Oh wanna, like, yeah. Uh, don't look up. Don't look up. That's yeah. 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 Well, and that was, look, that was, that was an allegory for climate change. It was very obvious. Yeah. Um, and Leo, that's Leo's those pet project. He likes to fly all over the world in his private jet and lecture you on what you can or can't do. And this is why this discussion is so frustrating yeah. because it is so political. It is so vitriolic and it's so full of people who don't give a flying fuck about the environment, lecturing you about the environment. Yeah, I am a, a barefooted California hippie. I always have been. My mother's Choctaw Indian. We would spend all of our summers outdoors. We have a a foundational respect for the environment. And it drives me crazy that because I don't shit my pants about climate every day, that I'm not considered an environmentalist. As if like, I want glyphosate in my rivers. And I I want microplastics everywhere. It's bullshit. I don't want a giant fucking garbage patch of uh, plastic the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean. I don't want that. And do most of the dudes who I know in wildland fire are environmentalists, At their but core. most of them are also hardcore Republican or libertarian dudes who, who, you know, would be castigated by the sort of, you know, the, the urban city dweller who likes to lecture people on social media. And it's like, look, man, like you said, just, this is let wildfire be wildfire. Yeah. And regardless of what climate is doing with wildfire, climate's always changing, colder, is not better. Colder can bring droughts. Can be it can bring insane winds. You know the the worst fires in the history of humanity occurred. You know in October of nineteen eighteen seventy one. Postigo, uh, the Great Michigan Fire, and of course the Great Fire of Chicago all happened on the same, same day. Crazy. I didn't actually know that until you pointed that out in the film, and then I went back through. I'm like, holy shit, dude. Ah. Yeah, people theorized that it, there was like a meteor strike, like some kind of meteor storm hit hmm. because it's the, the sheer volume of fire that hit the ground. But look, you had uh, a, it was a really cold year. So you had drought, 
which is very common. That's the thing. People don't understand that drought is a cold weather phenomenon. Typically like our, our resonant image of drought is like the desiccated cow skull in the Nevada desert, right? It's orange, it's dry, it's hot. Yeah. But cold, cold weather brings less evaporation and you, like chances are you're going to get nasty droughts when you have uh, cold spells throughout history. When we've had many ice ages, we lose all of our crops. Lots of people die. You have the bubonic plague. Warm periods like the medieval warm period, you have the Renaissance. You have more growth. So all of these things are distraction from wildfire because at the end of the day, whether the climate's getting worse or it's getting better, the fuels to me are the linchpin. And it is the way you can immediately impact your environment. The way that you said it, like you can have an immediate impact right now. This idea of like, oh, we got to rapidly decarbonize. Like, okay, that's not happening. What does it even mean though? What does it even mean? And do you know what it's going to do? Even if we, even if I take it face value that if you're able to vacuum out 50% of the carbon out of the air. And so the temperature is going to back off one degree. Really? That's going to change all the wildfires. Maybe it will. But at the end of the day, look at Look at some of the nasty stuff that's been happening this year. We don't have a lot of big fires this year. No, but we have a lot of fatalities. It's a very slow. I think we only have like 2 million acres across the United States. 2 million acres at the end of August. Yeah. It's unheard of. Like this is one of the slowest seasons in our lifetimes. I mean, shit, I didn't even see if we were in PL of five. I mean, we were, yeah, we're still in PL of four. But regardless, dude, it's, look, (laughs) there's just a ton of personnel up in NorCal. Yeah. But 99% of California has has zero fire nothing like it's not even remotely close but look they're at doing how, prescribed fat- fires in right. august right. in august it's crazy but look at how many fatalities we're having look at how many like, near fatalities we're having it's freaking crazy it doesn't look you can lose your home in a quarter acre fire mm-hmm. depending on where that ignition happens and like oh, was it the a lightning strike can hit your house and you can lose your home well, sure, but even even like it was the Bel Air fire in uh, 2019. I remember I was up on the Kincaid fire when this thing hit, and it ran up the 405 freeway up into LeBron James's neighborhood in Bel Air. Dude, that that knocked out a ton of multi million dollar homes. We're talking like over a billion dollars of damage on a tiny fire. Oh, it was yeah. a tiny fire. I was up on an 85 thousand acre fire. It didn't take out nearly as many homes as this tiny fire. Because again, the fuels immediately around your home, that's the big concern. And so again, just comes down to education. People don't understand the dynamics of wildfire. And they're so fixated on this distraction with climate that it's this nebulous thing that the, the average individual can't, they, they don't see their connection to it. Well, it's right? too it big. So it's, it's, big. It's macro. It's matter. Right. Climate it's China, is China, or we got to take a million cars off the road. It's it's oh we got to we got to fire up nuclear plants. It's like dude, that has well, nothing to do. Well, with what do we just like? That's the whole thing. Is like the whole environmental thing versus climate change, right? Yeah, climate change. Right. Climate will always change. Do we have a direct impact on it? Yeah, probably. We probably fucking yeah. do. At this scale, we have billions of people on Earth. Yeah, we probably have a a a, a direct implication in the climate change, right? But the environmental right. change. I mean, we know how to control the environment. hundred percent. And Just what's frustrating out the is, equation, man, but dude, Climate. like you, it, this has become such a cult like discussion 
that right now, what you and I are saying, we'd both be called antediluvian Luddites. Oh, no, I'm like, going to get shit on by Twitter, but from this episode, just by saying what I said. And I don't care. It's, I know, and it, but it's, it's I absurd. can't control it. I'll do my part. I'll <laughs> fucking recycle. Sure. I'm not yeah. going to buy an electric car because one, I can't afford it. And two, <laughs> that's, well, I mean, a Tesla's dude, pretty sick. Let's be honest here. A Tesla Model S, yeah. it'd be fucking dope. Yeah, but it comes it, with coal. You dude, plug into your house and it's burning coal still. Look, man, it's vote. Look, vote. The best, the best thing you can do if you care about the environment and transportation, the best thing you can do is drive your car till it's dead. That's the best thing you can do. I have the, out of necessity. I have to do that because I'm poor. <laughs> yeah, same here. Same here. Like I'm going to have to keep my, my cruddy creeper van for as long as I can. But look, man, I think Volvo did a study where they finally compared apples to apples. They on the same assembly line with the same resources, they were manufacturing the same model vehicle. The only difference was an internal combustion engine and an electric motor and the battery, right? Battery and fuel tank. Those are the only differences. And the carbon footprint difference to manufacture that battery and that electric motor was the equivalent of 90,000 miles of driving with an internal combustion engine, which for the average person is like eight to 10 years of driving. Yeah. So that- 15,000 a year, maybe. Right. That's not helping. It's not breaking even for another 10 years. So you're dumping 10 years worth of driving emissions into the environment right now at a time when you're claiming that the world's going to end in the next 10 years, which they say every 10 years. Look, normal people, when you tell them that the world's going to end in 10 years, and then it doesn't, and you say, well, it's going to end in 10 years, and then it doesn't, they start tuning out. Yeah, it's Machiavellian. Like it. Right. So the, to me, it's a distraction. Okay. And, and it's even uh, beyond that, dude. It's something that's wildly out of our control. Well, it's to your point, it's, there's also there's something called an opportunity cost. So people will argue like, well, we can do all of the above. We can get rid of the fuels and we can, you know, put solar panels everywhere. It's like, look, man, if you're, if you're spending any time, money, resources on doing this thing or discussing this thing, that's time, money, and resources that's not being spent on this thing. Yeah. So it's not just this innocent thing that, yeah, doing the solar panels isn't going to affect the fires, but it can't hurt. Like, yeah, it can. Because imagine if you were to put that money immediately into, into fuels reduction products, fuels reduction, right? Into paying, paying your workforce enough that they can be a full-time resource and they can do large scale, complex firing operations when it's appropriate to do so and really get this part under control. What I've found is when I tell people that the solution with wildfire, it, it can be solved tomorrow. If we want to, yep. we can get rid of the fuels anytime we want. Time, money, and resources, man. Just exactly. Time, money, resources. People get mad at me. But why Because they're so committed. They're so, look, because again, the climate discussion has become so irrational that people cannot have a nuanced discussion about it. And they like to use fire as a cudgel to scare you into buying solar panels and buying a $100,000 luxury EV because they think that somehow that's going to make the weather less angry. They love to use this stuff to scare you. They don't actually care about the wildfire destruction. They just, they love it as a scare tactic because they have an agenda. If you're, if you're an honest, normal person and you're trying to figure out solutions in a changing climate, in, in a world where you care about your environment, if somebody tells you like, hey, one of those, those natural disasters that you're worried about, we can fix that tomorrow. We don't have to wait 50 years for the climate solution to kick in. Yeah. Um, you'd be like, oh, thank God. Okay, cool. So let's fix that. All right. Wildfires are taken care of. We're going to do fuels reduction. We're going to have permanent anchor points around all of our communities so we can just 
fire them off whenever we need to every few years and, and just get that habit going so it's just permanent, right? The way that our ancestors did it. Great. Now let's deal with hurricanes or whatever else we're worried about. You can't. You would, That's the thing. You would think it would be a relief to tell people, hey, we are in control of this solution with wildfire. We don't have to just, you know, worry about the red flag warnings. We can go and take care of this proactively. People get pissed, but it's, it's absurd. So this is why I'm saying like the thing that I've run into, if you make a wildfire movie, you, it's not enough to skip the climate change issue the way that I did. I just, I don't, I don't get into it. Um, you have to light your hair on fire about it. You, you have, have to make to, a stand. You have, you to, have make, to make, make a, a point. Otherwise people get mad at you. Um, but a, it's a distraction. B, the movie's called Hotshot. It's yeah. about people. I, I give some fire history. I give some fire education. But it's about the people. And ultimately, these are the people who are going to provide the solution in terms of proper fuels reduction, managing the fires that do need to be attacked. You know, like you said, we can't just paint with this broad brush where it's like, oh, just let all of them burn. Let, let nature. It doesn't work dude, like that. Nature's too violent. Yeah. Dude. The Native Americans didn't let nature run its course. They were very proactive. So don't get it twisted. Just because we think of the Native American era as like the natural era, that wasn't the natural era. The natural era was characterized by long gaps and then nuclear fires. And it was just like shaking the Etch-A-Sketch kind of a fire. Yeah. Just hitting the, the reset button. Yeah. Control all the wheat. We don't want that. That's too much. So again, it's like, yeah. I appreciate that there's someone like you out there with a platform who can have this nuanced discussion, who, when I say, hey, I don't care about the climate thing when it comes to wildfire, you don't freak out and lose your mind and call me a climate denier. It's something that, I mean, are you a climate denier? I don't think so. We just had that discussion. You proved that you're not a climate change denier, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you want to, listen, this is the thing. We've only decided to pick a fight with mother nature in one regard, and that's with wildfire. That is the only thing that we have the capacity, the ability, and the knowledge on how to fight or harness. We wouldn't have evolved as a species without fire. We wouldn't have antibiotics. We wouldn't have language. We wouldn't have art. We wouldn't have your film or this podcast or any of that shit without fire. Yeah. So if we're bitching about a little bit of a lot of smoke like the East Coast did this year... I think that we know how to solve this fucking problem. The problem that I can't solve right now is that goddamn hurricane that right. fucking hit Florida this week. Or yeah, you can't do anything. You, you can defend against earthquakes in California, which you're well accustomed through. Yeah. You can right. defend, you know, against it. You can't fight it. Right. You can fight fire. Yeah. Right. You can look, you, you can, can harness it for ecological benefit. Exactly. Um, I'm going to change your relationship with fire, I guess, is what I'm well, getting it's, at. It's a lot like breathing. So breathing is, is both an involuntary and voluntary process. Yeah. If you're not paying attention, you're still going to breathe. But you can also choose to stop breathing. Yeah, you can hold you your can breath. Choose, yeah, you can breathe more deeply. It's, it's this interesting, um, it, it like, it's this transitional kind of process in our bodies, whereas peristalsis, digestion, um, your, your heartbeat, you don't control those. It's all automatic. It's gonna, it's gonna happen whether or not you think about it, and you can't slow it up or speed it down. But you can through breathing. Yep. You can use breathing to affect your heart, but it's still fundamentally involuntary. You don't have control over it. 
Wildfire, I hesitate to refer to as a natural disaster. It's not. First off, it's just it's nature not, doing its thing. Right. It's and nature's it's not, garbage disposal, man. Right. And that's the other thing. It's there's so much resource benefit to it. But beyond that, it's it's something that we can steer and we can work around. We can harness it the way you said it. Um, and we need to reshape our perception of fire. It, it doesn't have to be a love affair. But look, the, the education I got of growing up with my particular background is that fire is medicine. And this is, this is something that certain people are starting to champion, which I really appreciate. It's not like I'm the first person to, to describe this. No. So I'm not trying to take credit for it. But what I'm trying to do with my film, you'll note again, well, like I said earlier, the first thing that you say in your essay is the most important thing. It's what the movie is about. It's what the story is about. The very first thing that I say in my movie. Wildfire is the greatest force of fairness in the universe. So people come in yeah. expecting this big, scary wildfire movie. And yet the first thing that I say is wildfire is the greatest force of fairness in the universe. That's the conclusion that I reached over all my years on the fire line. The wildfire is fair. Everything that can burn will burn. If it ain't ready to burn, it ain't going to burn. And it's going to reduce everything into the same fundamental element. It's going to reduce everything into carbon. We need to have this approach where we don't think of it as a menace. We don't have to be in love with it. And that's what fairness is. It's, it's not necessarily a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just balance. And ultimately, you're going to see a decrease in the destruction when we seek balance, when we start to get the balance right of where we put our homes, what we allow in terms of uh, you know, the fuels, suppressing the fires, letting these go for resource benefit, managing these ones, suppressing these. It's all about balance. But step one is we got to stop demonizing it. We got to stop sensationalizing it in a way where like the only response to wildfire is panic. Because if everybody just panics about it, then nothing gets done. Right. They don't understand how it can be harnessed for positive attributes. Then it's always just going to be dump retardant on it. Yeah. Call the jets, keep spending billions of dollars putting it out, even if it hurts them because they don't understand it. And so, if anything, like the tone that I take with my film is meant to be as, I don't know, just neutral, straightforward in a way where, like, we're, we're try- starting to look at balance, looking at the yin and yang, and the way that it ends, the conclusion of the film, the final. I was going to say this. Yep. Go, go ahead, it's, dude. It's a nod to the permanence of this process, right? Again, to the point of, of not having dominion over nature, man, we have this inability to accept the inevitability of wildfire. It's been here forever. Certain as death of taxes, man. Dude, it's always going to be here. So we need to accept it. We need to accept the permanence of it and stop banging our heads against the wall with this hubris. Like we're going to stop it. We're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop the tides from coming in either. No. So stop trying, live with it, adapt to it. Like take the lesson from the people who lived here for 12,000 years and found harmony with it. We need to do the same thing. We got to stop thinking from this nerd perspective of like, oh, we can just technology our way out of it. It's like, no, you can't. Like, again, we don't have dominion over nature. (laughs) So it's like, lose the hubris. You can still use your toys. There's, There's benefit to some of that stuff. But just accept that at the end of the day, we are creatures of this planet. 
And we need to strike a balance with these permanent fixtures here. We aren't the only residents here. Wildfire is a resident. It deserves to be here just like we do. Oh, yeah. What was that ending, uh, that closing thing that you say, or one of the things that you said in the, uh, the film, <laughs> good, I know where to find you next time. Yeah, well, it's, look, again, showing the, shit, the regrowth, though. the regrowth in the burn scar where uh, I went to the cave fire. And again, this was a late season fire. And so you see the regrowth so soon after, because it's like the only thing that stopped that fire was snow. Yeah. So it was immediately, immediately hydrated and ready to start regrowing. So that area was replete with wildflowers and it was stunning, just absolutely gorgeous green, nuclear green, wildflowers everywhere. You couldn't tell that there was, unless you're a firefighter and you can see the telltale signs. Burn scar. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to have any idea that anything ever happened. It's like, look how beautiful it is. And it's like the other side of the coin is death saying, good, now I know where to find you next time. To understand that as much as you may celebrate these trees that are here and go, oh, I love this tree. And we get so sad when it burns. Understand that's the nature of it, man. All, all yeah. things are impermanent. Don't, don't get too precious about this piece of brush, that tree. That's its destiny to go to the gods, man. Just like it's yours gonna, and mine. That carbon, exactly. That's why I say wildfire is the greatest force of fairness in the universe because it reduces us all to the same fundamental element we have the same destiny as those trees and even just down to operations brother like what do they always tell you with these flas that piece of brush that house is not that fucking important no it's definitely not worth anybody's life it ain't worth your life let it go that is uh it's a micro bit of information and instruction that i think is applicable on a larger scale of like people who, who wail over seeing these trees go up like, yeah, look, it's sad, but you know what? It's going to be another one. Your, your little snapshot of, of our ecosystem is so tiny compared to the scale of geology and things that have come and gone in the past that you never knew existed. Just chill. Understand this is a part of nature. Accept it. Find a balance. There's a lot to be said about that, man, because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to have my little slice of like heaven out in like, I don't know, Truckee or, you know, up in the oh. Plumas somewhere, or, I don't know, somewhere in Montana on a river, you know, but the really, uh, the reality of it is, is that you have to live with fire. The farther you get away from the concrete jungle, well, your, your, uh, hardships might be a little bit different. They might change a little. And unfortunately it takes a lot of personal accountability with fuels management removal of you know all this stuff but you got to accept it you have to accept it that fire is a part of nature that it's it's a very real and visceral thing and it mm -hmm. could come from it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when i remember the the hennessy fire in particular in california in 2020 during that lightning siege this was a a multi-fatality fire this was a really nasty fire and things around napa burn so freaking hot it's crazy Like crazy. And I was up there, man. Oh, dude. Brutal. I was up there when the fire ran through Vacaville and nuked a bunch of homes. And I was going down some of these windy roads and it's just one home getting nuked after another, after another, after another. And then I stopped because fire was kind of ripping across the road and I couldn't really see where it was curving. So I'm like, I'm just going to wait till it blows through. I'm in the black. and And then all of a sudden somebody knocks on my window, scared the shit out of me. 
And it's this old dude. He's all sweaty. He's kind of smudged. And he rolls down the window. I'm like, dude, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I was just going to ask you if you needed any water. I'm like, like, yeah, I'm good. Do you need any water? He's like, no. I'm talking, this dude was like in his 70s, late 70s, for sure. And he's like, we just just, uh, saved our home. Uh, It's just me and my wife with a couple of buckets. I'm like, are you serious? And I'm like, good for you, dude. He's like, well, we do our brush clearance every year. So it's like, we just had to, you know, put out a couple of grass spots. Little spots. What, like, what's everybody else's excuse? There is not really. Right. So, I mean, I understand it too. If like, there's like a financial hardship to like pay somebody, if you're like, don't get me wrong, man. There's some communities out there, especially in rural America and forested areas, or even in the rangeland, like out in my neck of the woods in Nevada. There's a lot of poorer communities out here that cannot afford to do this shit and they don't, or they're elderly and they're out of shape and they, or they're out of shape or they have some health concerns that they can't do it themselves. And I feel for those people. Dude, a hundred percent. And look, uh, and I'll get to this. English Hills in Vacaville, where I was at, is not a poor community. These are, these are mansions that were getting busted. Yeah. So this, this isn't about resources. Um, and, and look, man, when, it, when I lived in, in Santa Clarita, we did our brush clearance. We had a half an acre. It's not a ton of land, but look, that's a few hours of work to clear out the brush on our hillside. But it's just a few hours of work with a weed whip. It wasn't that big of a deal. And, and most people could do it. But to your point, some of these, these deeper rural communities where it's like clearing fuels is a bigger thing. And frankly, given the fuel type, given the, the timber or, you know, just like the massive like scrub oak and stuff that's out there, you could clear around your property line. If you don't have a giant property, if the forest service hasn't cleared the hillside below you and reduced fuels with prescribed fire, dude, that fire is going to run up so freaking hard. I mean, it's just not going to matter. It's not going to matter. I mean, well, that's another thing too. Like, um, <laughs> here you go, man. Sometimes you get into those situations that there is not a fucking thing you can do. Mm -hmm. And I hate to use this as an example, unpopular opinion, but Hawaii, the recent fires in Maui in that type of fuel with 80 mile an hour winds plus you could have a fuel break a mile wide and there isn't a goddamn thing you can do about it. I'm sorry. And And it sucks. It's, it's true. People don't want to accept that. And again, people are, you know, they're harping on the issue like, Oh, they, they wouldn't release the water. I'm like, Dude, you know this because you've been on these fires. Anyone who's been on a wind-driven fire, especially one where the winds are over 60 miles an hour. Power goes now, out first, man. Dude, what, what are you going to do? There's nothing you can do. You have Nothing's no infrastructure. Hard. You have nothing. No comms. Uh, like, yeah, right. you ain't got shit, man. Well, and, and dude, even if you had water, yeah. even if you somehow you had a source, you had a water shuttle going, you had engines doing structure pro, dude. It's not going to do anything. You're pissing in the wind. Anything. A stru- yeah, a structure is already, it's already fully involved and you have wood structure after wood structure after wood structure with 60, 70, 80 mile per hour winds blasting it like a furnace. N- no amount of water is going to do anything on that. If you're to and stand look, in front of that thing as a firefighter, even in probably turnouts, SCBA, the whole thing with an inch and a half or two inch line, you're pissing in the wind and you're probably going to die. Yeah. And people don't, they're not going to understand that. People don't want to accept that. That's one of those situations. It's just like, oh man. And frankly, the, the same thing happened in paradise yep. on the campfire. Now the campfire was definitely more of a wildfire than the fire in Maui. Maui was primarily an urban conflagration, Yep. right? Started as a grass fire, but had one of those homes caught fire because somebody knocked over their barbecue, the same result would have happened Yep. because that fire was spreading from house to house to house to house to house. There's that dude, that thing wasn't going to stop. 
With Paradise, it was definitely much more of an established wildfire. But once it transitioned into that urban interface, dude, there, there were a lot of areas where the trees didn't burn. The fire was clearly moving from house to house. The homes were the fuel. I saw this on the CZU complex up in Boulder Creek. Car where, fire. Dude, the car fire was the same thing. The fucking man. tornado that ripped through that thing. Dude. And again, it was like that was in the neighborhood. Yep. Right. This is this is killed when, somebody it, killed a dozer operator for Cal Fire, man. It, it like was flipping over vehicles. Yeah. It, it, like, look, man, there's a level of can't do anything about it. And, and when you're that deeply entrenched, you don't have good infrastructure. You don't have good ingress and egress. Egress, more important. You don't have good understanding of fire behavior. How many videos have you seen from Paradise where people are frantically driving out of the black towards the flaming front to get to the green. Now, the average person doesn't understand why that's so bad. There are so many videos that I've seen, whether people are trying to escape the Woolsey fire or paradise where I'm like, dude, you're in the black. Yeah. I get it. There's still some, there's some, you know, traffic poles that are still smoldering and it, it looks scary, but it ain't going it, to, it's over. It already it's done. Through. It's already done. Stay there. Yeah. Stay there. But nobody knows that. Everybody's just panicked. Dude, I had an incident on the bond fire in 2020, wind-driven fire, late season fire in Orange County. And I found this, this, this triangle, it was a good safety zone, this dirt triangle surrounded by brush on all sides, three road intersection, right? That's why I had this dirt triangle. So I'm like, all right, this is a good spot. There was a hand crew that was stationed, they were staging right there. Fire looks like it's about a half hour away. I'm gonna go scout down this road. I'm gonna go take a piss. Uh, see if I can see what the fire's doing. Mm -hmm. I go around this edge, take a piss. I see there's a house over here. There's a baseball field, like a dirt baseball field. And then I start heading back. I wasn't gone more than 90 seconds. I get back. My safety zone's already completely overrun. So the fire must have spotted ahead of itself. And so I just like bolted straight It was like sucking together. Dude, it was nuts. It like fire, it ran so much faster than I thought. Um, And so I just bolted. I got into that dirt area. So I was, I was in a good spot. You, you know, it was hot, but I was fine. I see this car blast past me at like 40 miles an hour down that dirt road. We're talking 60 mile an hour wind. So that, that smoke is just laying straight down. You can't see a damn thing. Yeah, you I'm can't like, even stand your hand in front of you. Yeah. Dude, I'm like, damn, must be a local because I, I sure wouldn't speed down that road like that. Like you can't see a thing. Maybe like 45 seconds later, I see this dude stumbling up the road back towards me. His hair is all messed up, black all over his face. He comes running up, oh, panicked. I open the door, I'm like, dude, get in, get in, get in. Got him in the Jeep and he was freaking out. I was like, we're gonna die, we're gonna burn it up. I'm like, no, we're good. And I, I tried to explain it to him in a, a dorky way yeah. to, like, to, to distract him. I'm like, it's a safety zone. So see that, see that, though, that brush over there is only three feet. We're only, it's only gonna burn about 10 feet high. You know, we're 30 feet away. It's hot, but we're going to be okay. And so he started calming down. He had crashed his car into the side of the road because, of course, he couldn't see where he was was going. Panicked, yeah, and he didn't know. He didn't have a baseline knowledge of like no fuel equals no die. (laughs) Here's so he lost his vehicle. His vehicle burned up. I, Mm -hmm. I I drove him. I drove him out to the vehicle. The vehicle was on fire. I'm like, do you have anything in there? Like phone, your wallet? He's like, yeah, my phone, my wallet are in there. I'm like, dude, go get it. He's like, you sure? I'm like, yeah, do it now before it gets worse. But he had like, he was evacuating. So he had like all of his prized possessions in there. He lost oh, all dude, of them. That he managed to get his wallet and his phone. 
Um, and, and he didn't, he didn't die. He didn't get injured. And I, I drove him out to meet his, his mom and get him to safety. But like, he came from that house next to the baseball field. He was safe the entire time. He could have just walked onto the baseball field. Yeah. He had no idea. No. And, and this poor dude, I mean, that is a traumatic incident. Like that's, that's going to live with him the rest of his life, let alone the things that he lost. And he could have died like really easily. And all he had to do was just scoot his vehicle out onto the, to the baseball field. The home didn't get burned up because of course it had tons of fuel clearance around it. Yeah. It had a road and a baseball field. So it's like that small bit of education is missing even in the most dynamic fire landscape in the country. People have no idea about how wildfire operates. And so the, the lack of education with the normies is going to, it's going to get people killed. I mean, it does. A lot of people die trying to evacuate. Yeah. And some of these people may have been in a better spot, just sheltering place. Like we talked about before, your home can, can take the heat. Um, I, you know, I don't want people to get it twisted and think like, oh, don't evacuate. No, that's not but the case. We, I'm trying to say but, here. Yeah. But we need education to understand when it's, when you're, when you're safe and when you're not. And like, if the fire already burned through and you find yourself driving through the black and you're headed towards the flaming front, stop, stop. And that's another thing too, man. I think that, you know, bringing it back to the whole fuels mitigation and like the whole re-education and reestablishing our relationship with fire kind of conversation that we had. I mean, I'm a firm, firm believer of the all hands, all lands strategy, man. So if like, there's like a free basic wildland firefighting course, if there's a free, like, I don't know any, anything that's going to make you more resilient, more fire resilient and more educated and adaptable to fire, especially in the American West or shit, mm-hmm. I, even all over the world, really, because there ain't a freaking continent besides probably Antarctica without fire, <laughs> wildfire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, go out there and educate yourself on the very topics that we're talking about because mm-hmm. knowledge is power, man. You remove well, the fuel and you remove all this other shit and you'd like just take care of your, your property and be a good steward to the land. Right. Then a lot of your problems are going to be solved with this climate change, wildfire crisis thing that we're experiencing because it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. And at least you can check the wildfire danger off the list. Yep. So now you can, you can have your anxiety about all the other things that, that you associate with, you know, whatever we're doing, either bureaucratically or politically or environmentally. Um, you can at least take wildfire off the list. Okay. And like you said, if you live in the American West, this is a part of your life. Uh, unless you live in downtown Los Angeles, yeah. you know, um, it's a part of your life. You should learn about it. Well, so I mean, even I, in downtown Los Angeles, I mean, look at the Oakland fire. Some places, yeah. Look yeah. at the Oakland fire, man. That was an urban conflagration. I mean, and killed dude, hundreds of people. Right. A lot of people will tell you that the, the climate back in the 90s was better. But you point to a time when the well, that's the thing. You tell me when the, the optimal climate was, since everyone seems to have this notion that we have a suboptimal climate now. Like, okay, when, when was the optimal one? You tell me that era, I will tell you about a fire that ruined people's lives. So understand this is, this is not going anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Stop trying to avoid it. Stop trying to suppress it all the time. Stop trying to eliminate it from the landscape. You need to learn to live with it because that fuel keeps growing out of the ground every year. So it's like, it's not like just one and done, even with prescribed fire. It's, it's not like you can just do it once. You have to do it all the time. It has to become a routine. And the more you do it, the, the better your landscape's going to look. And then it becomes easier and easier. Right now, we're behind the eight ball. It's going to be very tricky. So it's going to take a lot of balls and uh, uteri 
um, you know, to have the intestinal fortitude to, to, you know, we might lose some homes and some, some burns that get past us because look, we've got a lot of fuels, but we, we have to do it. There's no choice. My hope with this, this movie is that it's entertaining enough that the normies will watch it, even if they don't care about wildfire and they will get a baseline understanding of how this stuff works and who the important players are. And uh, you look in a perfect world, they will reach out to their congressmen and tell them that, hey, we need to take care of these dudes and girls who are serving our country and protecting our natural resources. Because unlike me, just on Twitter in the city, these people are sleeping in the dirt, sucking in smoke, sacrificing their health. Getting their asses beat. Work. Getting their asses beat, man. Look, it's a great experience. It's awesome. It's, it's also cool. a very thankless job. They're totally thankless. And, and the best... The only thing we can do is make them whole. Just make them whole. It goes a long way. Call them firefighters. Stop calling them forestry technicians. You got to give people dignity, some square meals, a good paycheck. They got to be able to take care of their kids. Everything's getting more expensive and the, the pay has not kept up. So my hope is that I captured the culture in a way that can connect the hotshot who is an elusive creature with the average person. Who, will, who doesn't have the faintest idea of what the work is like. But I, I think there's enough humanity in it. And, and I spent enough time, you know, getting the stuff that you, sh- you told me to get, go and get, yeah. that people can identify with these elusive creatures with beards. And I don't know, man. It, I don't know if it's empathy or just an understanding that like we live in a community there are people who you don't know exist on that wall and <laughs> you need them on that wall and you need to, you need to take care of them. Um, so I hope that that's the reaction that this film gets right now. We just have it on. I just made a website because I did this fully independently. I can do whatever I want with the movie and send it to you. Can, I can send it to John Golden. Um, I can send it to Congress. And we actually had uh, Senator Romney's office reached out to us directly and no shit, asked, huh? yeah, he, and his office asked if, if they could take the movie and show him because they saw a segment of it and were very moved by it. And they saw the, the sense of urgency and understand that like, dude, these, these people need to be taken care of and soon because you're going to lose all of them. Um, but because I did it fully independently and I never sold it, we had a few offers that we turned down. We got, you know, rejected from a few big companies for, for various reasons. And one of them was, you know, we didn't talk about climate and they wanted it to be more about climate. Just like, eh, no, I mean, I think climate. the messaging about climate, it's already built into it. Control. It's, what, it's, it's, it's really like just control what you can control. Right. Well, look, Leo is going to do his movies about climate. My, my movie's called Hotshot. It's about shots. Yeah. <laughs> so like, just let it be about the people. Um, and so for right now, I, um, I think we're slated to have this thing out in, uh, October 2nd ish. They're telling us to not advertise that, but Amazon, uh, for whatever reason, we got delayed on Amazon until October 2nd. But since I didn't sell it to anybody, um, I have it up on my website, just hotshotmovie.com. And people have been renting it and buying it. And they've been watching it and sharing their feedback for the last like uh, month or so. And so people can go and watch it now and send it to their congressmen and encourage them to spread the word. Because 
the, the people who I've spoken to who are doing the real boots on the ground work of advocating on behalf of these guys, and they've been doing it for years. They're not just carpetbaggers, people like, like Luke and John uh, with grassroots wildland firefighters. What they tell me about it is that it tells the story that they've been wanting someone to tell for the longest time in a way that's digestible, in a way that you can feel, in a way that doing advocacy in Washington, D.C. and, and having these, these circle ups and these meetings, it's very difficult to just talk about it. You need to be able to see it for the people who haven't experienced it. You know what it's like. Yeah. You know, I'm you biased, can just though. I've been there. Well, I put foot yeah. in the black for 11 years of my life, man. And that's why when you smell something, you immediately feel something. But if the average person smells cedar, then they don't immediately think of that. No. So they need some kind of di- digestible story. And, and what, what they're telling me is that when people see this, they have a very deep visceral reaction to it. And that's firefighters and non-firefighters alike. So what I'm hoping is that enough people can step out of just this bureaucratic mindset when, when it comes to where we're putting our tax dollars, see the humanity in this work, see the balance that we need to find with nature, understand that wildfire is the biggest threat to our national security in this country. Wildfire has taken out more homes than the Taliban. We, we spent a lot of money <laughs> in Afghanistan, but it's like, we're spending all this money on, on these foreign wars. And it's like, meanwhile, okay, we're going to lose another thousand homes in California every single year or more to wildfire. And it's totally preventable. And it's totally within our grasp. We can, it's not like a hurricane. We can do something about this. Yeah. It's- but we need to make the, that human connection to wildfire and to the wildfire operators. And so what I hope that people do is get in touch with their congressman, share the story. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of dudes will rent it and then share it with their entire station. Awesome. I don't care. Like, I don't care about the money. I like the reason I made the website so it can be out now is that I'm not at the mercy of, of whenever Amazon puts it up or whenever Apple puts it up because they might delay it for God knows how long. We have this pay cliff coming September 30th. Yeah, I'm like, it's dude, right on the horizon, man. It's it's coming. And so that's why I made the website. I was feeling that sense of urgency. Like, I don't want to be sitting on the sidelines with this story about hotshots when God knows how many hotshots are about to get. They're going to voluntarily leave. We want to play the I fuck know. around and find out game. Well, I don't think it's going to be a good outcome because I like to hunt fish and like enjoy my public lands. And <laughs> I used to be one of these, these, these ground pounders out there too. And so I have an intimate connection with a lot of these folks out there of that relationship, that, that, that camaraderie still. Yeah. And, uh, we're losing generational knowledge. We're losing hundreds of years of wildfire experience every year to better paying jobs or different departments. Even, I mean, they might not be out of like the wildfire game entirely, but they're at a different department. Leo, like I know a couple, like I know a soup. Who left to go to the law enforcement side? Yep. That dude, man, think of how much, how, like you said, how many years of knowledge does that dude bring to bear? If like he was a soup on the Angeles forest, Angeles, I mean, the original hotshot crews came out of the Angeles, like Dalton. Yeah. That's the OGs. These are the OGs. Think about the legacy and the traditions and the, the wisdom that's now just being hemorrhaged. Yep. And I know personally, a lot of people, Basically, everyone on the Angeles already has in their applications 
or prepped for Cal Fire. They're ready to go, dude. This is this is very serious. The, the, the Forest Service has already been hemorrhaging employees. But look, it, this is beyond the Forest Service. This is, this is up to Congress. The Forest Service can only do so much. And frankly, I've seen encouraging signs from the deputy chief. Who, she seems to take this very seriously. She wants to do the right thing. She's, she's, she actually listens to people on the ground and is doing all the right things. But they're at the mercy of Congress. They can't just magically conjure more pay. No. So they need to rely on, on your representatives to, to, you know, get this thing into the end zone. And, and I, I had a discussion with uh, representative Curtis from Utah, who is co-chair of the, the wildfire caucus in Congress. And someone had asked him, what do we have to do? What's going to get congressmen to move on this? And he said, you have to tell a story. He's like, storytelling is the key. If you can come, and he was saying like, oh, like if you have like someone who just lost their house in a fire, bring them to talk about it. It's like, well, that's, it seems a little clunky and awkward. Yeah. And also we could have prevented it if they lost it in a wildfire. We could have gotten ahead of the curve a long time ago. Well, but also dude, think of, think of like some of the, some of the widows who've been advocating there's no hell. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. And Michelle is at the forefront of that fucking fight. And dude, she's such a stud. I, and I was, I, I was so um, heartened to meet her and, and, and talk to her. And she got a chance to see the, see the flick. And it moved her very deeply. I can imagine. Um, but it was very upsetting to see what an uphill battle she's had to endure after she's already lost so much. And she's doing this advocacy work on behalf of a lot of people who will never meet her, will never impact her life. She doesn't have to do it. Nope. She's still doing it. And, and the thing is, it's like, you know, you can say, oh yeah, bring someone who's been a victim of some kind of tragedy and, and that will tug at their heartstrings. Is that working? It's, it's not. They, they, we, we need more than just one person fighting alone, man. We need a collective of people to really have solidarity and organize and speak up. And frankly, hotshots, especially active hotshots, they're not inclined to, to speak up. It's part of the, the culture, the man. Culture is you put your head down, you just do the work. Shut up and you do. talk shit to your boys. And I love that. It's totally admirable. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are going to get steamrolled. And, and the consequences for our homes and our natural resources are very significant. So someone has to say something. So I, I love that, that people like Luke and John and, and you and other people with a platform are, are advocating. And it's interesting to see that wildfire is becoming, um, you know, a more, I guess, broadcast platform, you know, between some of the podcasts that are coming out and, you know, people are taking an interest in this stuff. So there, we have this moment in the next 30 days where we really need to try to use this momentum and use all the storytelling that we can and all the advocacy that we can and really try to get this thing across because I, I worry that I worry that the consequences are going to be pretty dire and I wouldn't be surprised if the Forest Service loses 50% of their workforce. I'm estimating upwards of 60 to 70%, man. Yeah. Just based yeah. off of like a random sample of like people that have like boots on the ground experience that have followed me. And that's a very yeah. small, very, very small sector. Yeah. It's, it's going to be devastating. So Look, man, I, I don't have any, I, I spent a lot of money making the movie, but I've, I've already absorbed the cost. I don't really care about the, the money part. 
don't care if one dude rents it and shows it to 30 dudes. Uh, people have asked if they can do like a screening to raise money for hotshot crews or, or whatever. And asked like, Hey, how much, how much do I have to pay you to, to do a screening for a fundraiser? I'm like, you have to pay me anything. Just take it. Just assure me that you're not going to give the money to the fucking forest service. Yeah. <laughs> and like, just do it. And, and I say the same thing to John and Luke. I'm like, guys, if this can help you advocate when you're having a conversation with a senator or some bureaucrat, by all means, go for it. Take it, use it, broadcast it, share it. Try to try to communicate this stuff because um, people do have a visceral reaction to the movie. And I think um, until people can connect with the humanity of the people on the fire line, nothing's going to change. No. The, the priority is just going to be the drones, the AI stuff. Um, and so uh, to the other people in, in wildfire journalism, stop nerding out on fucking aircraft. Yeah. The retardant porn's getting, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love me some good retardant porn. <laughs> don't get me wrong or helicopter porn, but that is like a very specific tool for a very specific purpose. Right. The real work gets done by people swinging tools. Right. Period. Swinging tools, swinging tools, putting fire on the ground. Yep. It's never going to change. Yeah. You might add some drones to help drop some of the, you know, those PSDs out into the, the remote areas. Awesome. It's, that's a great merging of technology and synergy, right? Yeah. But at but, the end of the day, though, I mean, it's it's, it's like take a prescribed fire boss, right? Yeah, they are an artist. This is a very like intuitive feeling kind of sport. And if you don't have the slides to support that and the experience to support that intuition of fire, you're going to lose your burn, period. As an 100%. artist with a fucking paintbrush. Same thing with operational suppression, folks. If they're lighting something on fire, that's why they're walking it or taking the same pace or have X amount of lighters deep. That's all it is, man. Dude, and that, that was one of the more interesting things that I learned observing the of sheer volume of, of firing operations that I did is how much of an art it really is. And there really are wildfire whisperers. There are dudes who feel it. And like some dudes are better at it than others. Oh, yeah. But like there is an intangible sense of knowing what the fire is going to do, just sort of feeling what is happening. It's, it's almost like a sixth sense that these nerds don't understand you cannot replace this with AI. And I remember sitting in on, on this, this demonstration where this dude from an aviation company was showing up like, Oh, you know, I know you guys do your fire operations. Well, just imagine if you have, you know, like the version of chat GPT, it's like calculating what the weather might do in two hours. And I, I'm watching these hot shots in the back of the room, just shit. shaking their heads. Like what the fuck are you talking about, dude? You have no understanding of what this is. And you're right, dude. It is an art. It is it's art. I, I mean, I, I even say it like that in the movie because observing the way that they do that, I, I wasn't able to figure out the paint by numbers guide. I've seen so many. Lines. Right, dude. I've, I've seen so many firing operations mm -hmm. and I've filmed so many of these things and watched it so many billions of times that like, dude, I could lead a course on this stuff. I could qual up technically, but I'm telling you, man, there, there's inexplicable things that some guys do to feather this stuff in, to get it just right, to get it to suck the fire in on itself and to guide it. It's, it's alchemy. Oh yeah. And, and people need to see that to really understand why the human element is so important. That was so critical in my filmmaking process. Like, why, like, so even my producers at times, they wanted me to cut out the scene about, you know, painting with fire and, and the firing operations segment. I'm like, 
you don't understand how important this is. This, there is an art to this. There is an alchemy to it. And these specific humans are doing it. Oh, yeah. There's no replacing that. And, and there's, there's a reason why um, I'm, I'm really drawn to hotshot culture because it feels like a time capsule. I'm, I'm a big it's its fan own, of yeah, like, microcosm. Yeah, I'm a fan of the old West. I feel really connected to it. I've always been a nerd about Westerns and stuff. And hotshot culture feels like a time capsule. It feels preserved, you know. And when I when I see these dudes on the line, it's sort of I feel like I'm I'm filming World War II in a way. It just looks ancient and um, time tested. And there's something really. For, you know, the risk of sounding like dork, there's something kind of magical about that. Oh yeah. And, and I was very moved by that. And that, that sort of informed a lot of my filmmaking process. I hope that comes out. Oh, it definitely does. It, because if, if it does, then you are going to feel that sense of humanity that this isn't just a mechanical war that's being waged. Yeah. Right. I mean, this you is, can mechanize or automate a lot of it with like, drones and all that other shit especially on the like fuels type or fuel removal stuff right you can oh, yeah. you could you're still oh, gonna yeah. need human input though oh but when you're putting fire on the ground man anybody can put fire on the ground but to get fire on the ground to do what you want when you want and have the effects and the outcomes that you want that's fucking art and it's more important now than it ever was yep my ancestors could just light a stick on fire and just Throw it <laughs> right now. So sorry, we have too much of a fuel backlog from the 10 a.m. policy for the last time. Fire debt. We have yeah, the fire debt is too severe, and we've we've placed ourselves in the middle of it too deeply. We're too deeply entrenched. I'm sorry, it's just we we don't have the luxury of being cavalier about it. And so you need very well seasoned experts to do this work. Otherwise, you and I both know. It's gonna go south. It's gonna go south real fucking quick. Real quick. So, um, it, like now more than ever, it's more important to take care of these folks and preserve their preserve the legacy and preserve the tradition. Um, because if we lose it, we're gonna lose a lot more. We're gonna lose homes. We're gonna lose lives, and we're gonna lose all the pretty trees that we love. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. That's that's what it is. Yeah. Eventually, it's not like, like like we were saying earlier. It's not an event. It's not a a matter of if it's a matter of when it's an it's an inevitability not an eventuality yeah 100 percent. yeah and so i i'm i'm a big advocate of look man i had i had the hubris knocked out of me um being on the fire line humbled me um having having some experiences that that made me understand my mortality by being very close something to very uh life-altering when you come face to face with your own mortality and it's it's humbling and it's healthy and i needed it and I, I needed a, a paradigm shift, you know, uh, where I saw something bigger than myself. For some people, it's nature. For some people, it's God. I think all of us need it. We need to see something bigger than ourselves. When I look at the way that we approach wildfire now, it feels like hubris. It feels like us deciding in our modern world that it's man over nature. I really hope we can shed that. And it's, this isn't about self-flagellation, like, oh, we humans suck. No. That, that My movie doesn't strike that tone at all. It's like, no, no, no we're, not just, the slightest, we're part dude. of this world. We're part of this world. Yeah, take care and, of the fucking thing. You wouldn't right. shit in your living room, would you? Yeah, exactly. And also, like, don't just immediately take things that, that seem scary as scary bad things. Yeah. Right? 
have an open mind, have a paradigm shift, understand that like God is going to move things in ways that we can't. Nature is going to move things in ways that we can't. That's okay. It doesn't have to be a scary thing. Um, let's, let's maybe take a step back, view our place in nature, take a look at our traditions because there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from 10,000 years of tradition. Oh yeah. And, and strike a balance so that the nerds in the lab coats aren't making all these decisions like they did on Jurassic park. And then I got to be Ian Malcolm saying like, Hey, you guys were so obsessed with whether or not you could, you never stopped to think whether or not you should. We live, we live in a, in this technocratic society where we've allowed ourselves with all of our fancy gadgets to think that we know best yeah. and we can conquer everything. And we don't have AI to win over shit, brother. I mean, Nothing. tomorrow we don't even know it. We could have a gamma oh, yeah. ray burst from like somewhere off in Alpha Centauri or whatever. Just, <laughs> just microwave <laughs> us, turn this whole You're planet just, into a microwave. Right. And imagine if, if Yellowstone blows, right? Yeah. They say it's a mega volcano. Imagine if that goes. That's the thing. It's like it's just going to get it real dark be, real quick because the sun, you right? Know, see the sun. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Literally. Or we and could be our own demise and just nuke each other. That too. Yeah. And again, it's or or just like load all of our water with glyphosate and we all get cancer. Yeah. It's look, it's not to, to be nihilistic and say, look, we could we could die tomorrow. So fuck it. Like look, nothing matters. That's yeah. not the approach. We're not gonna it's party that, like it's look, 1999. <laughs> right. We look, all things are impermanent. Yeah. We we are a part, we have this tiny, tiny, tiny little slice on this planet. 8200 man. Right. We get we get to have our experiences. Um, it's our turn to be stewards of the environment and this planet pass it on and pass on the traditions and honor the, the past traditions and not think that we're so fucking special. Yeah. Right. Like the richest dudes in the world are all going to die. You can't take any of it with you. So having a little bit of humility in the face of nature, I think is very important. And that's, that is a lesson that I learned very starkly, very harshly in, in my process of making this film. And, and it changed me deeply. And I, there's a lot of loss that I experienced. There's a lot of loss that I witnessed, you know, my relationship went to shit and it burned up. But now I, now I have a new one. Justine has a new one. Justine's got a family. She has this new destiny and she's so happy. I moved out to Tennessee. I've got my lady. We're starting our own family. We've got chickens. We're happy with every death. There's rebirth. Boom. And this, it is a permanent infinite cycle. There can be sadness in it, but you got to let it go. Embrace the beauty of nature and understand that like, hey, man, this is all part of it. It's all part of the ride. We get an interesting little slideshow that we get to view. We get our 15 but minutes of fame, so to speak. Yeah, we, we ain't that important. And even in death, there is new life. And that, again, at the very beginning of the movie, I asked that question. But if, if life feeds death, Death creates life. And how can you separate the two? You can't, brother. You can't do it, man. It's a permanent cycle. So just uh, have a Coke and a smile and enjoy the ride, man. Enjoy Try the ride. And up. More importantly, <laughs> while you're here, do some good shit. Everybody's capable yeah. of bad shit, but it's hard to do good shit. So yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Do your part. Don't be a, don't be a fucking tool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't be a tool. Swing a tool. Go cut some line. Don't be a tool. Go, Swing one. Yeah. Go like, you know what, man, go, go serve, go serve, go join a crew. Yeah. Um, even if it's like a CCC crew, go put in a couple of years and serve, serve your country. Go, go work out in nature. Like um, do something to protect your natural resources. I encourage everybody to do it. I think it's a great experience. 
And I think ultimately when people watch the movie, I think a lot of folks are going to be kind of inspired to, to do the work. That's what I'm it's, hoping for, man. Cause we're yeah. hurting for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, um, yeah, there's a lot of, it, there's a lot of shit behind that, of course, but yeah. Yeah. Which we we're we're, we're going to get it done. We're going to get it done. <laughs> Gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do like clockwork orange style. I'm going to make every Senator and Congressman in DC watch the movie. We're going to hold their eyes open. <laughs> Just <laughs> so, brainwash until them. They understand what's going on. We're going to get this thing passed. No, uh, like I don't want to be too idealistic, but ultimately we, we all have a responsibility. So whether that's personal responsibility and removing fuels, taking accountability being stewards of the land and personal responsibility within government and, and the society in which we live, call your reps, email them. Like I've been posting on Twitter, like I emailed my, my two senators and, and my congressional representative in Tennessee. And I just posted one of the things that I wrote to them, like copy and paste it. I did a version for a Republican. I did a version for a Democrat because I know we all have sort of different angles that we look at this stuff on. That's fine. Yeah. Um, different narratives work for different people, but just dude, just take five minutes and do it. There, there are widows who depend on this. Oh yeah. Who feel fucking abandoned by not just the agency, but by us. These the hotshots are serving us. They're serving our country. They're serving our community. We need to serve them. We need to take care of them. We can't abandon them. Like I'm doing the best that I can. I try to make this movie. I've been giving way too much to charity because there've been way too many fucking injuries and fatalities. It's been a devastating year, dude. And I'm sick of it. But fucking like, GoFundMe's, man. You have to rely on a GoFundMe and like the luck of gambling on the internet to see if anybody's going to donate to pay for your fucking medical bills if you get injured on the job or worse, you pay the ultimate sacrifice. That's tragic, dude. It's insane. And and like the family who you leave behind, like they're not getting taken care of. So it's like, we, dude, we need to serve you guys. Like us normies, we normies need to serve the people who are serving us. It's just that people don't even know that y'all are serving, no. right? People, so, people aren't even aware of it. So no one even my, knows what I, we do. Right. And that's, that's why I love your documentary is because it captures that essence. It captures the culture, the work, the importance of what we do. Yeah. And it makes it digestible to where everybody can understand it. Yeah. Hopefully it's not so hokey that that <laughs> the dudes are actually in the world don't think it's too bad. But the reaction I've had is, has been overwhelmingly positive. And it's, it's been very, very humbling as a big relief because I, I lost a lot of hair in the process of making this movie. And some of it was frankly just worried about what the reaction would be from you guys. Yeah. I, I frankly don't well, care you didn't about wanna, I mean, that's, that's, that's compassion in its highest form, man. You didn't want to let the people that you loved down. Sure. And, and there was a, a high level of trust that they let me come in and be next to them and, and film them. And, and, um, I feel very blessed that I got that opportunity. And so to me, I felt an obligation to honor that and to just do my best to, to, man, dude, it took me like, it took me like a year and a half to edit this thing because I was trying to make it perfect. Worthy. Well, not per- look, man, can't be perfect. No. I wanted it to be worthy. That's it. Because what I witnessed over six years was sort of an immeasurable effort by hotshots and wildland firefighters in general. And I felt like I had to rise to that level in what I do. And that's, that's why I, I worked so hard on getting my body in enough shape to get up there, spent the hours, the days, the weeks, camped out, going to these fires. 
and doing the due diligence of, of trying to tell the story in a way that felt like it honored the level of work that you guys do. And I, and I also think you captured it very well, man. And you put your heart and soul into this film. And uh, yeah, I, I can't even begin to recommend it enough, dude. This, this film is a fucking much must watch. In fact, if anybody's listening to this, which they should be, I hope they are, because this movie yeah. definitely kicks ass. Send it to your friends, like show other people, because a lot of people, even our own family members, like, you know, there's one of those things too. You can circumvent a lot of the bullshit conversation behind the family dinner between the whole, like, sorry, my dog is barking, but, um, uh, yeah, you can circumvent a lot of the awkward conversations around like, oh, what do you do for a living? Just show yeah. them this fucking movie and they'll spell 100%. it out for you. Dude, I know this full well, having you know gone to a lot of Thanksgiving dinners back when Justine and I were together. Her family, dude, they've, they've known her her whole life, let alone her career. They still think she like slides down a pole and shit, you know, like, like, yeah, I think she's rolling <laughs> like around on big red. Like, yeah, has no idea what she actually does, and and she doesn't like talking about it. But also, how do you how do you get people to really understand it? So this this is a good point to, to like um, just play the movie for your family, and they will have a thorough understanding of what you do. They get a crash course, and they're probably gonna they're probably gonna be sobbing by the end of it There's because they're they're, them, dude. they're finally gonna realize just how much you sacrifice in the process. Oh yeah. There's yeah. some heavy parts in there, man. I like, yeah. I watched it with a couple of my buddies like that uh, time I asked you to, uh, if, if I could show it to my coworkers Yeah, and dude, they're grown ass men sobbing at some of the parts. Man. Yeah. It's wild. It's powerful. It's, it's moving. Thanks man. It's, and I, I will say that's been pretty common and I've got, I got a lot of texts from a, a bunch of dudes who I haven't heard from in a long time. I didn't send them the movie, but they got, they got wind of it and said that they were choking up. And these, these are people I would never conceive of ever crying. Um, and look, man, that's, that's not necessarily the measure of, of anything in particular, but um, firefighters and non-firefighters alike are responding to it. So the story of what you guys do has a lot of value. Just on a, on a cultural and emotional and societal level, it has a lot of value. I don't know if it has any financial value. I, I doubt I'll ever <laughs> to make be my determined. money back. <laughs> because, dude, the reality is if New Yorkers aren't choking on smoke, nobody cares. Exactly. And that's you know, what I mean you know by what I mean? far away problem, man. Right. So it's, it's good. Look, it's going to be difficult to market. But like I said, I've already absorbed the cost. I don't really care about that. The story has value just on, on, a, on an interpersonal level. Oh, absolutely. And and, and so, yeah, look, I encourage people to, to share it because, um, dude, we're, we're so close. It's a community that I, I genuinely do care about. And I feel like we're, we are at an inflection point in this, in this next 30 days. And man, there's, there's going to be a serious reckoning if we can't get that pay increase. And it's just going to be really bad. And I don't know if we're going to be able to recover from it, honestly. And if we then, don't get our shit together, we're not going to be able to recover from it. Right. And, and I just don't, I don't see that happening because where I see all the, the energy going is towards drones and AI. And, and I think it's a huge mistake. And for all the, all the reasons that you outlined very eloquently earlier, um, it's a huge mistake. Um, so we, we need to preserve the, the human workforce. Uh, we need to see them as humans and as firefighters, not forestry technicians. We have to remove this like sort of technician view of what they do and restore the humanity of it. 
Um, it's, that's not just nerdy, sentimental bullshit. Like I, I'm not in this world. I live in fucking Tennessee, yeah. a chicken farmer. You still get right? wildflowers over there though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Out the same for it. Absolutely. hundred percent. But at the end of the day, I am out of that world. I'm not going to fires anymore. Um, I, you know, like I, I have my own separate life. Um, so this isn't about sentiment. This is identifying an issue that we have in this country. And if you are an environmentalist, like I am, you care about our natural resources and you also care about the people who enjoy living amongst them. And so if we want to hang on to that, we need to hang on to these people and we need to circle the wagons and we need to really support them because they've been serving us for decades with not a fucking mention. No one ever calls them a hero. Like you can't even call them a fucking firefighter. We should call them forestry technicians. We just, we got to do better, man. We got to, we got to serve the people who serve us. I can't stress that enough. So this film was my effort to serve that community and hopefully do no harm and not embarrass anybody. <laughs> like, so you got to take the Hippocratic stuff. oath over there and like the bubble. Yeah, exactly. No yeah. First do no harm. But this, this was my effort to try to serve the community. And I, and I've been doing some things behind the scenes that I, I know you're aware of to try to do my part in, in help, help be a storyteller and influence people who maybe need a little nudge to do the right thing. Um, but I, people need to understand we're all part of this. We're all part of this earth. We're all part of wildfire. We're all part of nature. And we're all a part of this community and our country. And um, I feel like we are so polarized and so like divided, just divided and disassembled. And, and we just had this satellite culture where we're all in our own bubble. Super That's, tribalism too, like the tribalism know, thing going on. I mean, yeah. I, which I can't deny. I mean, I'm part of a tribe. Like, all, my shit, dude, you know? We all fall into it. But the thing is, it's like, that's all make-believe. These are artificial divisions between us. Yeah. Like, oh, you're a fucking, you're a MAGA guy, or you're a liberal, or you're a woke person, or you're a conservative. All these, these tags, they're not real tags. No. They're just they're artificial. They're just isms, div- man. They're, they're, they're like, just isms. Yeah. Right. The reality is we need to breathe oxygen. We need natural resources. We need clean water. We have to take care of the people who are serving us. You can't stand in the middle of an ocean of fuel while it's on fire. You're going to die, right? There is there is real life. Wildland firefighters do not operate on paper fires. They operate on real fires. They operate in the real world. Everything about your work life is very fucking real. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter if the dude on your left is a Republican and the dude on your right is a liberal. Doesn't matter if he's gay, he's black, it's a woman, or doesn't something matter. in between. Doesn't fucking matter. What matters is bare mineral soil. That's all that matters. So, like, dude, firefighters operate in the real world. I hope that, the, like, the film can can do something to ground us back into this community and and realize that, like, get past the division. Like, I see people coming at me from political perspectives. It's just fucking nauseating. Like I said before, like you'll never be able to guess what my politics are. Ever. It gets annoying, man. It's so annoying. It's, it's so, so worthless. Yeah. It's and like, it, I, I don't even like argue with those people. It's like yeah. the, the number one thing that discredits anybody in an, uh, like a conversation is do yeah. your research. I'm like, <laughs> fuck, here we go. Here we go. Uh, okay. Go, go on the fire line for six fucking years. Like, yeah, how's, no how's that for research? Go live something. Like go out in the real world and go do something like, 
all, yeah, all, all this stuff is maddening. And, and look, there, there is, there is an element of cattiness in the wildfire world, especially in the wildfire journalism space. And I, I get heat from people for sort of bizarre reasons, you know, who, who, again, the tribalism is so intense that again, if, if you don't talk about climate in a certain way, then you have to be canceled. It's like, oh, he's a climate denier. Don't talk to him. It's like, fuck you, dude. It's no, like, there's nuance you, you to got, this. And there's no silver bullet to any of this shit that we're talking about either. There's no right. one size fits all solution to any of it, whether it be climate change, wildfire, fucking politics, the right. conversation that you and I are having right now. There's nuance right. to all of this. Right. And I guarantee you disagree with me on a lot of shit. I guarantee you I've said some stuff on Twitter that probably makes yeah. you cringe. There's some that's, shit that I disagree with you, like the year round yeah. fire season. The only reason why I see like you say that uh, fire season is not year round, which I do mm -hmm. agree with you. However, the nuance of that, of why I disagree mm -hmm. when you say that is because the reality is, is that we can be deployed anywhere in the country year round. We can get caught, be returned to service like in our off season. And that's right. why I say it's a year round fire season because well, fires are still popping in Florida. They're burning or right. somewhere in California, you know. Just because but December this, hits, it doesn't mean fire season's necessarily over. This speaks to why we need all of our voices and this exactly. cancel bullshit. And like, oh, you're not allowed to talk because you're a climate denier. You're not allowed to talk because you, you said it's, it's not a fire year. And you said it's a fire season, not a fire year. Here's the reason why we differ. Because I'm, I'm on a crusade when I talk about that to educate people on fire behavior. Yeah. And to get more educated on wildfire, because I'm, I'm primarily interfacing with the public who needs to understand fire behavior better, because that is the big issue. They don't understand that they can do things in their direct life to mitigate these things. There's a time of year to do it, right? So you don't want to do your brush clearance in February. You want to do it May 30th, you know, or even June, depending, like if you're in California, for example, I'm just speaking about SoCal. Um, so having an understanding of what fire itself does, not necessarily the, you know, the, I understand the cultural approach of getting people to think that we need to have a year round approach to tackling the issue of wildfire, meaning you need to be paying people as full year employees yeah, because seasonal you need to do mitigation work before the fires show up. But my issue is that there are too many people politicians, bureaucrats, and journalists who will deceive you about fire behavior. And so when I talk about fire seasonal, I'm speaking just from a behavior point of view um, and trying to get people to stop panicking and just have a more rational approach to these things. And so that's why when you, when you look at my commentary on social media, a lot of it is tamping down panic and it's tamping down this sort of hysterical narrative that comes out of the media because it's not helpful. Panic doesn't help anything, right? But having a rational discussion, demystifying how fires operate, I see as vital in terms of educating the public. I can certainly appreciate not wanting, not wanting people to think that like, oh, well, these people should only be working between July and maybe the end of October. It's so we don't need to out than that though. I know, but I that's mean, the thing. That means we need to do a better job of telling the story. Exactly. I mean, and, and fires do happen in the middle of December. I mean, look what happened in Colorado. What was that three years ago? Uh, yeah. Hidden Fork? Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. Marshall. Yeah, the yeah. Marshall Fire. Yeah. And the Thomas, the Thomas Fire in Santa Barbara, my hometown. Yeah. But that was at that point, that was the biggest fire in California's history. And that, that burned in December where we had nine straight days of Santa Ana winds. It's like, dude, yeah, of course, 
that's the thing. It's like they're again, anomalies though, for the most well, part on a yeah, macro but, scale. But it's also, this is a rudimentary understanding of, of wildfire. What do you need for wildfire? Fuel. You don't, you don't need a, you don't need a <laughs> date. You don't need a date on the calendar. You need fuels to be dry and you need an ignition. Fuel oxygen and ignition, man, or heat. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and the thing is, is like, dude, those fuels are going to stay dormant through winter. Yeah. So yeah, you could, and that's, that's going to be thing. primed and receptive fuel beds through the winter. Super. Yeah. And I have to push back on, on some of these, these nerds online who think that they're fire experts who are like, oh my God, we're now fine. We're starting to see what I've been warning my colleagues about fires in winter. I'm like, bro. Any yeah, twelve year old I fought fire in February. Exactly in Nevada, Dude, Carson it's, City. It's, it's maddening. You'll have multi thousand acre fires in February. Yeah, it's less common, of course. Yeah. But like, look, That's dirty August. Well, not only yes, yeah, August. August is the peak fire season. Okay, we get it. There's there's always going to be some anomalies. There's going to be nuance. But at the end of the day, understanding why a fire in winter is possible, even if not probable, but it's also something that happens every year. We do catch winter fires every year. Yeah. Um, Again, if you understand the fundamentals of wildfire, that's not a surprise. It's not some new thing that I've been warning my colleagues would happen because of climate change. Like that's not happening because of freaking climate change. Yeah. That's this is just remedial stuff. Your your fuels are still dormant. They're not taking water yet. So it doesn't matter if there's snow on the ground. If those fuels are still exposed, they can still burn. And like even even after the green up, there's a lot of grasses, dead grasses that are still there kind of underneath the green. It's called a thatch grass. layer, man. <laughs> Dude, and that, that shit can run. Oh, yeah. Again, this is just remedial stuff. And again, what, what are we talking about? Talking about fuels. We're not talking about the climate. We're not talking about carbon. I've seen fires burn in April that look like it was the middle of August. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, and in 80% humidity, like the Palisades fire a few years ago, it was... It was like 58 degrees and 85% humidity because it was on the coast. It's, it ripped like 1,200 acres. It looked like freaking August, dude. And it was because the fuels were so bad in Topanga Canyon. And, you know, some of the locals there, they were like, the old, old people are like, dude, it hasn't burned in my lifetime in this canyon. I'm talking like 70 years of, of no burn history. It's stuff that should be burning every few years. And it looked like a rat's nest. The fuels were so bad, it overcame the climatic conditions that would normally suppress that fire. And that's what people have to understand is that like, when, when you're not taking care of the fuels, you can, you can get bitch slapped when you're not expecting it. Like on these fires that we're discussing, these anomalous fires are more likely if you're not taking care of those fuels. So look, I take your point 100% in terms of trying to paint an image of fire being an annual thing. A yeah. full year process. But that's including right. prevention, some right. suppression, the anomaly fires, right. but like all the other shit, dude. That's, that's the all, thing. Yeah. But that's, that's, why, right. that's why conversations like this are so important though, is to have the right. nuance behind it and like explaining mm -hmm. what you mean by that. Because a lot of people are going to take it as face value and right. they have no frame of reference to go off of, like without and, the education. Dude. And the thing is, I, I will readily concede you might be right. That my, my approach and my rhetoric is not helpful, but where but it's like my, well, my particular sticking point, like I, like I said, my perspective is I want people to have a better fundamental understanding of wildfire. So they're empowered to, to, to take personal responsibility because ultimately they can't rely on you risking your life to be out there. They can't rely on government because what if the fire starts right outside their house? Government ain't going to have time to show up. Okay. Nope. So 
I'm very, I, my bias towards action is in the action of, of getting people to be well-informed so they can take their own action and take personal responsibility. And so part of that is, is um, rigid and direct education and strict enforcement of just normal application of, of fire principles. And I get a little too fixated on being stubborn about like, dude, peak fire season is not here. It's in August. You know, I, I'll admit that I get a little too stubborn about that stuff because it just annoys I'm just as me. Guilty, I, dude. Well, what, what annoys me is when I see politicians and journalists and tribalist people who have an agenda about whether it's climate or some other political thing, a bureaucratic thing, when I see them bullshitting people to try to scare them, that drives me nuts. Treat people like adults. Tell the truth. And like you said, let them ingest a nuanced discussion rather than something that's manipulative. Because I feel like when we try to tell people like, oh, you got to be ready for fire year round. I feel like that's a little disingenuous because look, yeah, you could. You, In certain areas. Up, yeah, but, sure. But, but again, but. It's, it's going to be August. <laughs> it's yeah. like, that's, that's what we got to work. That's, that's, that's what we're gearing up for. Yeah. And, and timing our operations. Like I said, you know, if, if you're like, Oh, we got, we got to get rid of our brush in February. Like, don't do that. Do it. Like let the regrowth come through and get all of right. it. You're, you're going to have to do it twice, you know? And like you said, this is a multifaceted approach and responsible landowners in other parts of the country where burning isn't considered scary. They'll they'll burn their property biannually. Oh yeah, by themselves I mean, too. Right, by themselves. They'll run their they'll run the tractor, their dozer around the property, and then they'll burn it off, and they'll do it a couple times a year. Is the end. You got to be diligent in in order to be a good steward of your property. So um, ultimately, what you said is gospel, dude. It's it's a nuanced conversation, and we need to we need to like hear more voices and and not have this like weird cult like tribalism because I don't think it's helpful for anybody. No, it's not and, helpful uh, for a damn person out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, there's room for disagreement. And ultimately, it has to be predicated on some measure of humility. With My baseline is God and, and, and nature are bigger than me. And so, <laughs> and so <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. try, I try to filter, filter my, my discussion points through that lens at all times. I'm not perfect. And my ego will, will get away from me. And, and especially on Twitter, because I don't, I really don't give a shit because I hate social media. Yeah. You're, but, I mean, come on, man. They get the arguments <laughs> with keyboard warriors. It's just like, it's so futile, man. It's like, it's a waste of my time. I know. And I, dude, I can't wait until like the movie is, is set off to sea so I can just delete my Twitter account and never be on social media ever again. So I take the set it and forget it reproach. That, no, you're right. Um, I, I've had some intelligent people tell me just post and ghost. Don't just post and ghost is like a great tactic, man. Yeah, totally. And also you get sucked into the shit storm and nobody wants that. I don't have time for that yeah. stuff. I got more important yeah. shit to do. Yeah, totally. So. Well, brother, I am actually having to go do daddy daycare right now. So I got to cut this one short, but I think there's a lot of stuff that we missed that we could talk about. You want to do another episode, man? Come, come on, be maybe before the thing actually hits the uh whatever platform is going to be you say amazon right amazon should be the first the but first. it's also going to be yeah it's going to be on apple voodoo and the google play store so all the the non-curated platforms um where you know you can submit to netflix is purely curated yeah. so it has to go through their approval process they hand select what goes on there 
but so we'll be on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, and Google Play. Copy that. I can't wait till it comes out and like more, more people have access to it, like on a wider network, dude. Cause I think that this film needs to be seen by a lot of people, especially particularly on the West coast, because it tells a very vivid story and it educates quite well. And I love it, dude. I love this movie. Fucking kudos to you, dude. Thank you. Knocked it out of the park. That's that's very, very, very kind of you. I've been very humbled by your support and, and by the support of your colleagues. It's been very, very rewarding experience. So thank you. I would, I do, if you'll have me on, I'd love to come back. I really enjoy yeah. this discussion. I always, I always love chatting with you though. Yeah, dude, we got to have another one because I feel like yeah. we, we got a lot more stuff to cover. I dig oh, it, yeah. dude. Yeah. Amen. So, but for the end of this episode with Gabriel Mann, I always give the opportunity for you to give out some uh, shout outs to some homies, heroes, mentors. Who do you got for us, dude? Uh, too many to name. Um, first off, uh, I just, I, I want to thank my, my, my dime, Ashley. This is a very difficult process of, you know, I've got this movie about that, that features an ex and, you know, she and I have our own life and she's got to live with that. And I, I just, I admire her so much for being so supportive and, and helping me get this movie out despite, you know, that kind of emotional minefield. I think it's super impressive and it's, it's not something that a normal person, a normal person in any relationship should have to deal with. You better keep that one and, forever. If she's willing to, you know, navigate that. That's a, and, and thank you to Justine and to, and to her man, Matt, um, because it, in a, a very similar way, it's, it's weird. It's freaking weird, right? It's like the, the ex is making a movie about her and it's this time capsule from years ago and they've got a family and they're happy. Um, but both of them are excellent firefighters and just good people. And I'm, I'm just very happy for them. And, um, I'm, I'm glad that, that, uh, we're able to get their blessing and get this movie out because I do think it's important and just the patience that everybody's had is, is pretty impressive. Um, uh, God bless my producers, Sage and Phil. Um, uh, dude, I, I'm very grateful to you. Honestly, you really helped me along the way, even though you didn't realize it. It's a small comment, but I did fixate on it years years back, and it helped guide me in the right direction. Um, and thank you for your support and your feedback. Um, and I appreciate guys like Jonathan Golden and Luke Mayfield. They're they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes. I'm sort of swooping in at the tail end of you know the fruits of all their labor. And, you know, providing a little, you know, extra flavor to it. Uh, I don't want it to make it seem like I'm doing a lot. They're the ones doing the work. You guys have been doing the work and I think you're doing a lot. Um, dude, there's a part of me that wants to shout out some of the folks on the fire line. There's also a part of me that doesn't want to name them because um, they're still they're still working. People need to understand nobody gave me permission to do this. Ever. You just kind of ran. With I just it. did it. I just did it. I just did it. If people asked me to leave, I would leave. But it's better to I, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission right. sometimes. Well, the thing is, dude, the California laws are so liberal. I, I can do whatever I want. I think people were afraid to break the law and tell me to leave. But um, I think these folks know who they are. The story that I told earlier about, um, you know, saving that corner of homes up north in Doyle. They know exactly who they are. Uh, and, and so I hope if they do hear this, they understand that, um, somebody, somebody noticed and, um, thank you to, uh, Ben Strawn, 
I'll name him um, because he's he's uh, he's been a really strong voice, um, not only in the community but just personally. He's he's helped me quite a bit and gave me some really good support uh, throughout this process. And he's just a very special dude. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, Ben. He's a rad dude for sure. Yeah, 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 dude. Well, man. I definitely appreciate what you're doing and I definitely appreciate like what you're the story that you're telling because the way you captured it is so unique and it's so easily digestible and it it tells a bigger message to the not only the general public, but it also tells us a lot about ourselves. Like I even picked up some of the nuances of the film, like little things that I could relate to that I didn't really even think about before. So definitely appreciate what you're doing, man. Thank you for producing this film. It fucking kicks ass. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Right on, dude. We'll get you on for another one. All right. Yeah, I'd love to. All right. And then uh, last but not least, where do we go to uh, find your movie? Hotshotmovie.com. Boom. If you can't spell it, you just fail at life. Yeah. You should probably write, <laughs> stop writing your uh, applications for USA jobs and crayons. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Hotshotmovie.com. It's, it's, it's up. It's available for rent and for purchase. Um, and it, I will leave it up there forever. So if you purchase it, you'll always be able to just stream it there, um, forever. And it should be coming out on Amazon prime October 2nd, and okay. it won't be free on Amazon prime. You're going to, you've got to rent it or buy it the same way you would on my website. The only difference is that money's going to go to Jeff Bezos and his yachts and steroids. <laughs> you go to hotshotmovie.com and his dick rockets. Yeah. It's just, it goes, it goes to me and my chickens. <laughs> there we go. Cool. We'll support the film. I'll keep pushing it out there, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate the hell out of you. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next one, dude. Yeah, man. And boom. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with my good friend, Gabriel Kirkpatrick Mann. Now there is two of them in Hollywood, so the Kirkpatrick thing is kind of important, right? Anyways, <laughs> dude, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, giving us a little bit of the inside knowledge on how this movie was made, what it took, and some of the finer points in cinematography and the storytelling process that you so beautifully put together. I highly recommend this movie, and uh, yeah, I think it kicks ass. So uh, definitely support this guy directly. If you want to buy the movie or rent the movie, by all means, please go directly to www.hotshotmovie.com. And that way he gets the proceeds like this. Like you said, man, he's spent about a half a million dollars out of his own damn pocket. And he probably has no plan on recouping that cost. So either he's high, either he's crazy, or maybe he's just passionate or somewhere in between all three or a combination of all three. I don't know. But support this dude because he is telling a very fucking powerful story, especially when it comes to the whole pay disparity thing. Definitely appreciate that whole uh, that whole part without giving too many spoilers away. Anyways, Gabe, dude, one more time, thank you so much for being on the show. And like I said, once again, go to www.hotshotmovie.com and check it out. As for the rest of you, y'all know the drill. Stay salty, stay vigilant, and yeah, hopefully this whole shit show on Capitol Hill will start to shake out. And uh, yeah, I have some very unpleasant words to say about the way it went down, but uh, that's just Civics 101. Unfortunately, uh, people that want to well, be obstinate on Capitol Hill, decided to do that. So, 
Special shout out to our sponsors. We've got Mystery Ranch, purveyors of the finest damn packs in the damn country. Doesn't matter if you're rocking a uh, wildland fire pack or a other load-bearing essential pack. So hunting, fishing, backpacking, all of that jazz. Not to mention they got the uh, name in the game when it comes to the uh, workforce development uh, scholarships. Yeah. So go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. We got Hotshot Brewery. Kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. And a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Go to www.hotshotbrewing.com. And last but not least, we've got the Smoky Generation, a.k.a. the Wild fire experience sorry the american wildfire experience you can go check them out over at www.wildfireexperience.org it's awesome bethany you have a kick-ass organization over there keep it up that being said y'all know the drill stay safe stay savage peace